Welcome to the latest installment of the Survivor Historians, and today we will be talking about Survivor Marquesas. As usual, I'm Mario Lanza. And I'm Jay Fisher. I'm still Paul Oslison. That's good. I'm yeah. glad you're still Paul. Yeah, yeah. hanging in there. And uh, today we'll be talking about a season which I have been touting for years as the crown jewel of the first four seasons, and it's one that... Up to this point, we've talked about three seasons. You know, we had Borneo, Australia, and Africa. And those are seasons I kind of feel have been documented well before. Like, you didn't really need anyone to talk about these. But Marquesas, I think, is the first one that really needs someone to dig into because it's the one that I think is kind of criminally under underreported or under-talked uh, about by Survivor fans. Would you guys agree with that? Well, Jeff Probst said that we shouldn't like the season, so therefore I don't think we should even be doing this podcast. Which is funny because I feel like on the online community – of the first four seasons, this one is probably looked on positively among online fans. So I'm kind of feeling weird about talking about a season that people kind of like. Yeah, it's true. It's Australia's got its detractors. Africa's got its detractors. And I know Marquesas has its detractors, although those, those are the ones that I'll argue with the most vehemently, just because <clears throat> today, at this point, and even at the time, I always felt that Marquesas was considered the best of the first four seasons. I think Marquesas, the, no, Marquesas is the best season four of Survivor ever. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that, too, I think. Well said. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> yeah, that's, I remember at the time, right after it ended, the consensus of Marquesas among most people was, wow, that was fantastic compared to kind of the first three because it, it upped the game on so many levels compared to the first three seasons. You had power shifts, you had over-the-top characters, you had guys like Boss and Rob who were getting their own promos. And basically what I recall is that at the time, people would say, Marquesas was awesome, but the ending sucked, and, and fuck Vesepia. So basically, this is what we're going to try to dispel here today, that even if you didn't like the ending, it's still a fantastic season. Well, I'll put my two cents in here before we get started, that I, I don't hold Marquesas at the same level that Mario does. I don't get a boner every time I, I watch it. <laughs> but, I mean, I will say that, I mean, it's I mean compared to, to some later seasons, I, I always will put these the earlier seasons first. So I don't want to say anything negative about Marquesas, but it it isn't as strong from start to finish for me as some of these other seasons around it, and we'll talk about that when we get into it, but what you do always, no matter if you like it or not, is you have to give so much credit for Marquesas for what it did for later seasons, and I know it's a kind of a, a thing that we repeat over and over again, but that's why the show has been so accessible because in these first set of early seasons, so many things were done right and so many of the right things happened to allow Survivor to continue on to, to season 25+. Plus. And uh, we'll get into that when we get into it, but I mean, you have to have at least respect for Marquesas for what it does for the franchise. Well, I understand that you don't get a boner for it, Paul, because there's less old people falling down in Marquesas. Right. I mean, <laughs> it was potential there was Patricia, but that dies out pretty quickly there, and I never got to see her, you know, tumble down one of those awesome mountains. It just kind of was like a letdown, you know. They showed these these rugged Tahitian mountains, and I'm like, I want to see big old lady fall down the hill. But and... I, I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering why Mario gets such a boner for it, because where is the 40-something flight attendant? Well, there's Gabriel, and there's other stuff, too. So... And again, I don't mean to, then to sound gay, but it's completely gay. 
Well, this is it's it's <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of nice that we can do this. It kind of you know gives us a, you know a snapshot of Mario's evolving tastes. You know what he's into now. Yes. He kind of went through that phase, Southern mm-hmm. flight attendant. Now he's kind of he's experimenting. It's his college years. You know. Uh huh. And those so, blonde, the, the pretty blonde boys. I was just gonna say he goes like oh, I'm no longer into Southern women flight attendant. I'm into uh, hippie genius dudes. <laughs> Well, you know, my favorite movie is The Karate Kid with William Zabka, so I like the pretty blonde-haired boys. Get him in a body bag! Yeah! <laughs> By the way, for those of you who are not are aware of this, I will point out that Mario is completely married and that we are just joking here. But <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge Gabriel fan. We'll get into that in a minute, and we'll explain why, why, why this has been a long-running joke about me for years. Because I have always been the Gabriel cheerleader among the online community, and Lord knows he needed one. Yeah, I still refer to him as Blonde Ethan, so you're going to have to defend him here. <laughs> all right. Now, before we get into it here, the first thing I want to do is I want to dedicate this podcast to all our uh, listeners in Australia, because I'm not sure if a lot of fans aren't aware of this, but Survivor Marquesas was never actually shown in Australia at the time. What happened is, in Australia, they got Borneo, they got Australia, they got Africa, and then I think someone in Australia decided, hey, we can do this too. So instead of doing showing Survivor Marquesas, they made their own version, which was Australian Survivor or something like that. And I don't remember, I think, like uh, Yahoo Sirius 1 or something like that. I don't remember exactly what happened, but it was not well received. And to this day, it's kind of a point of contention that many Australian fans never saw Marquesas. So they never saw, again, what I consider the most important of the early seasons because it changes everything. And, and so a lot of them... They have no context for some of the stuff we're talking about, why it was a big deal. So I would like to dedicate this podcast to all of them, particularly our friend Lana Halperin, and uh, I believe she's in Perth. So, Lana, this one's for you. It's partially for you, but it's also partially for the Australian Survivor, where one of the immunity challenges, I'm sure, was moving to New York and then landing a blonde journalist. (laughs) Yes. All right, with that, we are going to jump right into episode one of Survivor Marquesas. And, of course, the first thing we should be talking about, most Survivor fans know this by now, I'm sure, but we'll go over it just to, and to you know, be complete. But, uh, of course, Marquesas was not the original location for the fourth season. No, I was going to say, I mean, as awesome as we get in this first episode of uh, a Miss Cleopatra, originally Cleopatra was supposed to be riding in on a camel. Correct. <clears throat> yeah, for those of you who don't know this... The fourth season of Survivor was going to be, I believe, Survivor Jordan. Is that what it was called? Or Survivor Arabia? Survivor Jordan? Arabia, that was it, yeah. yeah. It was Survivor Arabia, and it was set in Jordan. And Oh, you know, Survivor Arabia. I was like, Survivor Michael Jordan? I don't want to be in Chicago. <laughs> no. But yeah, that was. this is the thing, that they were just upping the stakes, you know, with the difficulty. Australia, they almost died. Africa, they almost died. And the fourth season, they were going to go to the Middle East, which they literally would have died. So, I mean, it just boggles <laughs> your mind to think of this, to think of this nowadays in, you know, in 2012, that they almost filmed the Survivor in the Middle East, but, you know, obviously because of 9-11 and all the tensions, they couldn't do that. So at the last minute they switched, they, they went to, the, to Marquesas, which is in uh, Tahiti, and they got a good deal there. They just threw together the season and the theme and everything, but that is kind of the backstory that Survivor 4 was supposed to be in the Middle East, and yes, people probably would have had their throats slit. Well, thank God they changed it. I mean, they I guess they, they didn't have, uh, you know, the full effect of, you know, how people would receive Africa. But people didn't want to see – the one complaint that people always had about Africa was that it looked like they were just dying out there in the desert. What would have happened if they would have been in these sand dunes in Jordan? I think yeah, it would have been 
a crucial element of Survivor, in my opinion, is the fact that they can conceivably f- get their own food uh, somehow. You know, <laughs> like in mm-hmm. the first in the first season, you know, Richard did go out and catch fish for the tribe, and you know, it was brought up every once in a while, but you know, it, it kind of got sucked into the fold. And then in in Australia, they they did hunt, and then the storms happened, and then they basically starved. And then in Africa, they were just in the boma because they didn't want to get fucking eaten by lions or whatever. And it's like if they were out in Jordan, I just oh came and think and then they rebooted and went to an island where maybe they can try to fish or and, you know we'll talk about the two different camps there Rotu and Maraamu but it's like they had they they had the ability to get their own food and that sounds so dumb but I think it's kind of an important staple that is established with Marquesas and Survivor. Yep. And a lot of people don't know this now because it's not really emphasized in Marquesas when you watch the season but the big twist in that fourth season was this is the season where they have no food they are given no food at the start of the game they have to source all their own food so that's kind of the, the twist of Survivor 4 even though if you look at it compared to 2 and 3 Australia and Africa obviously the Marquesas was a much uh, less harsh place to live but that was the big twist at the time that they that, that this was still the way the show was being marketed at the time like it's getting more dire and more dire and the conditions are getting worse and worse and this is really how they would build the show back then to the audience that this is the season where someone's finally going to die and I and think we did. should. Well, I was going to say uh, we just need to also take you know a second to to commend them for finding this location in Marquesas because I don't know, I, Martin. I think I've read somewhere you said you, you think it's the most beautiful location. I feel like I've read that at one point, and and I'd yeah. have to put it up there at least in my top three. I'd have to go through and really think about it. But I mean, it's an awesome location because it's not just an a beach location. You know, so many of them end up kind of you know, blending together. But it's really awesome how you know how. Uh, um, what's the adjective form of topography to top- topographical? Yeah, that's close enough. <laughs> yeah, something like that. You know, there are mountains on the islands. So, I mean, I think it's awesome. The The waterfall is just like an awesome, you know, addition addition to, to camp life. And there's little things like that that really just enhance the season when, when you're watching and how beautiful it is to watch. Mario did write that, but remember, he also wrote that long hikes in really take away from the mood. It's <laughs> true. You can't trust whatever he writes. That's true. Well, I will say that this is back when I was writing a column for Survivor Central. I used to do a weekly column. And at the start of every season, Marquesas was the first one that I did it. I would go through the bios and, you know, I'd read through and read all their favorites. And I just would memorize all the players. And I would name a very bold pick at the start of the game who was going to win just from their bio. And Marquesas is the first season I ever did that. And if we were talking about things that Mario wrote that he's not proud of, I will say that Tammy was my pick for who was going to win Marquesas. I was very sure of it, just from the look in her eyes, from her bio. And I remember writing in my column that she is a pit bull and she is just going to eat these people alive. So once again, something that I wrote that was not true. Well, you know, it's interesting that you saw that in her eyes because when I saw her eyes, I didn't really dig them. I didn't really like her whole presentation. And... um that's a line from Zoe there, which I guess you, you could have been even worse by picking Zoe, so I, I will give you that. Well, I will say what was funny is that I, I called Tammy a pit bull in my preseason column, and then at some point later in the season, one of the characters actually refers to her as a pit bull. And I remember I got so much email about that at the time, like, you fucking asshole, you you got quoted on the show, I hate you. Like, I just remember that, that someone at that my actual quote got used on the show somehow. That's good that your quote that you quoted probably after it was filmed... Yes, was was put on. Well done, sir. Well done. Yes, yeah, that's impressive. And actually, there was the scene that was cut. Yeah, there was the scene that was cut when Tammy mauled a two-year-old, so she was just like a pit bull. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into Marquesas. Like, yeah, like Paul said, it's a beautiful 
scenery uh, setting. The islands are great. I, lo- I always love the colors, the the uh, blue and the purple, just kind of perfect for the season. And you have this opening shot in the first episode, you know, where they're coming in on the boat and there's dolphins just swimming along and there's all this footage from under the water and the water is so blue. And it's just an amazing opening to a season, especially coming off the ugliness that was kind of Africa, where there was really nothing to look at. It was so neat just kind of going back to the beach, which, again, was the theme of season four. We're going back to the beach this time. And I, I think it really set the tone early for how, how different the season was going to be. And watch, like him, this, watch him jump but, off that boat, too. It isn't jumping off into the nice lagoon of the Cook Islands or something or even Bornhill. That water is, like, scary. I would not jump into that water. No, it's tough. Uh, you know, I like to crack wise here, but in all seriousness, and I said it before, the beginning of Marquesas is kind of, you know, we, we get we take these first three seasons, Borneo, Australia, and Africa, and we kind of learn our character archetypes. We kind of get the game established. We kind of understand what we're doing and what the game can be. But Marquesas, even right from the start, just jumping off the boat, getting onto an island, you know, that is Survivor. And that is kind of the formula that they took going forward. That is the one. And one thing that jumps out at me when I was watching Marquesas just recently and something I've always noticed is how much fun the season kind of seems. The players are kind of laughing, they're joking, they're goofing off at the start of the game, and it's so much different than Africa where just no one was having fun whatsoever. It's just like night and day watching these seasons back to back. And that's one thing I think a lot of people should keep in context here when Marquesas came out. It was right after this drab season where no one was enjoying themselves by the end. And episode one of Marquesas is a fun episode. There's all sorts of goofy stuff going on. And then before we get into it, I think there's a lot of love. Uh, you know, people always talk about what intro they like the best. You know, the the famous intro with the with the song and 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 the clips and the people and stuff like that. I think the Marquesas is wonderful, probably because of the love that's put into it. You know, there's accents in the music with the uh, tribal men chanting, and they've got you know the actions on the screen following. You know, what's uh, going on in the song? You know, it's just really really well put together. Watch that clip. And just see the love that they put into that intro, even. You just knew it was going to be a good season. And I will always point out, again, that Marquesas is my favorite of the Survivor theme songs, too. That's the one. Whenever I made an intro for my uh, All-Star Hawaii story, and Marquesas is always the music I use in the background. That's always my favorite, because it's got those primal war chants in it, which I think is really cool. You also turn it on during sex. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, um, speaking of sex, we're going to get into this more later, but I do have to point one thing out here that this is not all that well known, in that, except that uh, Marquesas is, I believe, the first season that had an actual romance between the contestants. And uh, this was not shown in the episodes. This is kind of just came out in interviews afterwards. Do you guys know the two I'm talking about? Well, I'm just mystified that you don't count Jerry and Colby as a real romance. <laughs> That was yeah. That was more a romance gone wrong. That was more like a fatal attraction romance. This was a, an actual romance. Brandon and Frank don't count either. Brandon and Frank. That was a one night stand. That's you know, lust does not equal love. Hit it and quit it. I agree. Exactly. So, do you guys know the two I'm talking about that actually were a couple in the game and dated after the show, and it was not shown in any of the episodes? It it rings a bell. Like I remember the story, but I can't I can't name the people right now. Jay, I'm silent for a reason. All right, I'm putting you guys on the spot. Now, this is something that is not that well known, but at the time, this came out a lot in the interviews that Gabriel and Nalia were a couple during Marquesas, and they dated after the show, too. I've heard that. Yes, and it explains a lot of how the show, how the season develops the way it does. So I just want to point that out to people. Even though it wasn't shown in the episodes, this is kind of a major part of why some of the stuff happens the way it does in the season. So just file that away for now. 
Okay, it's filed. He follows directions. All right, uh, so anything you guys want to talk about the start here? The only thing that I got in my notes here for episode one is um, in the start of uh, the first the first season of Survivor Borneo, they give away the winner in the opening credits where they say only one will remain, and they you know they show the Tagi Four and they show Richard walking across the bridge. <clears throat> well, I'd like to point out that they do that again in Marquesas, and this is not something else that was is not that widely known. But if you watch at the very start when Jeff says only one will remain. Sure enough, it's a it's a uh, spotlight on Vesepia. She's sitting right there in front of the frame. So I'm just pointing that out that the editors went back to their old bag of tricks in Marquesas and spoiled the winner in the first 30 seconds of the season. Well, then she vanishes for the next 11 episodes, right, Mario? Oh bullshit! Well, we'll talk about that. You know, what a shitty way. Okay, <laughs> so fuck you, Paul. Now, this is one of the questions we get over and over. When people ask, when we ask for Marquesas questions, and people, as people always say, "Well, how come Vesepia was so invisible? It's like they didn't show her." And my rebuttal to that is, they do show her. Go watch Marquesas. She's the narrator of Mara Mataamu. I mean, she's in there as much as any of them, except for maybe Boston Rob. So, we'll come back to this again later. This is another pet peeve of mine, which is why Paul's trying to bait me. <laughs> bait. He's a master at baiting. That's right. Um, the servant, the servant waits while the master baits. Ooh, Mel Brooks reference. Well, everyone always use, knows, I think, the, the token thing that we probably need to talk about in this first episode is, you know, as they get off the boat, they have a, uh, a couple mile uh, paddle in, with all their belongings and whatnot to the beaches. And uh, basically, Sarah being Sarah, you know, doesn't really help as, as the tribe's getting in there. And uh, Sean, who is probably one of my favorite characters of the season, has just an absolutely brilliant confessional at the beginning where he's basically like, you know, well, she was like Cleopatra and she's on the crate and she's looking good and her boobs are hanging out and, you know, we're all going. It was a really, really fun confessional. And then he follows it up with, uh, other than two flotation devices, I don't know how she's going to help us. Nice. <laughs> It does fact, become a theme of theme of the first episode of Sarah's body. Yes. I'd like to point out just something that Jay brought up there, that Sean being funny, that it, it was reported at the time, I remember this from Entertainment Weekly, that Jeff Probes before the season said, uh, Survivor Marquesas is the funniest cast we've ever had. It's just you'll you'll be laughing your the entire in the entire season just watching these episodes. And I think the guys he's talking about are, are Boston Rob and Sean. And you can watch in the early episodes and you can see what he's talking about that but I just want people to remember that, 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 that probes described at the time the Marquesas cast as being the funniest. God, what turned him so sour on this, on this season? <laughs> well, yeah, the combination of Boston, Rob, and Gina going early probably turned him off, but we'll get to that later. All right. Um, one thing I noticed when I was watching um, Marquesas episode one just last week is, is who gets the first confessional of the season. And this cracks me up if you watch it. Do you guys know who gets the first confessional of the season? Hold on, playing it out in my mind here. One second. <laughs> That's right, Paul. I'm playing stump Paul. I'm gonna stump him here. Um, I don't know. I was I was back on the tribe. What's this? <laughs> yeah, wait. Who is it? Who is the first person we Zoe. get? Zoe. Zoe gets the first confessional. No, season. Oh God, no, no, no! I forgot. You know, <laughs> I was gonna say I thought it was a row two four. I'm like, is it the general? You know, this is <laughs> this is actually kind of a, a tactic that I think they they even do use like up until modern Survivor. Like they're the first person I believe to get a confessional in Survivor Samoa is is uh is Brett. <laughs> and if he's not the first, he's one of the first. And they do it again in uh, Survivor South Pacific. I don't think he's the first, but he's one of the first is Rick. And so I feel like when they put the whole season together and they get these few people like, oh, crap, we don't show them, like, enough. Okay, well, let's give them the first interview. That way uh, we can at least we, – uh, we buy some time here so they don't get too mad at us. 
Well, Lord knows when you think of Survivor Samoa, you think Brett. And just like when you think Marquesas, I mean, immediately it's Zoe. Zoe, yeah. Well, she does party hard. She does. She plays hard. She works hard, plays hard. That's her attitude. <laughs> I find her amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Zoe is actually Zoe is gro- like like forever. I didn't even think about Zoe, and then I was really annoyed by Zoe. And I'm at the point now where I can just like laugh at Zoe. Like she is such a bizarre character to me to have on the show. Like like if you just like watch the show, just focusing on Zoe, she'll bring you so much laughter and joy. Nothing makes sense with her. The tiny bikini that does it? The tiny bikini. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're having way too much fun. Exactly. We apologize to Zoe. I know Zoe's a big listener here. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Zoe. (laughs) Yeah, she's out in a fishing boat right now getting us in on Sirius or something. (laughs) Don't yell at me at your next email to me, Zoe. She's lying to me. I know she's lying to me. <laughs> They're all lying to me, and we're being played as pawns. I think we just replayed every Zoe highlight from the season right I think, there. I think we're done with Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we get on the beach, and we start getting some confessionals. We're on Mara Amu, and we get some fun things, and then we go over to Rotu. And uh, Kathy gets uh, in with everyone right away, right? Yeah, immediately. She's just a bright little butterfly that bonds with everyone. I mean, that's the thing with Kathy. You know, now in this modern era of survivors, so many things are brought up about the older woman who, like, starts off bad and turns things around. Well, that originally was started by Kathy Vavrick O'Brien. She is, like, the, the perfect model of, of woman gone crazy, uh, you know, in the opening of the season and then ends up turning it around. But, I mean, you watch those first episodes with Kathy and I, she's annoying. Like, I'm like, oh, God, get this old lady out. But, I mean, obviously, by the end of it, you end up loving Kathy. But what was she thinking those first minutes off the boat? Yeah, she's just brutal to watch, and it's amazing you watch her story as the season goes along, where she goes from, you know, annoying and shrill, and then she just becomes endearing somewhere around episode three or four, and then she's like the heart of the Mata Amus, and she's got this crazy laugh, which just makes you laugh every time you hear it, which is like, I can't even do it, I'm not, I won't do it justice, but yeah, and then Kathy has this amazing comeback, but yeah, at the start, it's amazing how grating she is. And this, at the time, even to this day, I still say Kathy has one of the best story arcs of all time because she really comes a long way. It's just a matter of getting out there. You know, you're excited. The game started. You've just paddled in on the beach. But, you know, they paddled in. They're tired. They're all wiped out. And then you just sit there. And I, it just must hit you at some point. Like, I have fucking nothing. I mean, we are just on the beach. And there is nothing. And she just walked around and said, we got to start fire. We've got to do show. You know, and she just is, you know, kind of gets into this panic mode. And everyone's like, okay, crazy lady freaking out on us. It doesn't help that she has crazy eyes, those giant bug eyes, when she bugs them out like that. <laughs> if you watch the season, yeah, watch when she opens her eyes really wide. The, the, the craziest eyes you've ever seen. And the way she adds man at the end of everything, it was just like, oh, man, we got to get a fire, man. We, uh, you, <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to tell you, dude, I, I've, had, I've had survival before, man. I, we just got to get it going. <laughs> okay, speaking of Kathy, what is the deal with the way she will always call it Survivor Marquesa instead of Marquesas? She's really stubborn. I know she's probably technically correct, but no one else says the Marquesa. She even says it in All Stars, back on Survivor yeah. Marquesa. I know, she's just stubborn. She's going to take that to the grave. Like, you know, fuck all of y'all. I know you're not saying it right, and I am. We'd go and see if she'd still say it, but, you know, that involves going to Vermont. <laughs> Vermont, please. All right, uh, what else? Um, one thing I noticed about episode one on the Mata Amus is we were just watching it the other day, my wife and I, and 
my wife made a good point. She's like, why would you put the two people with the Boston accent on the same tribe? <laughs> it's a good point. Yeah. Peter and uh, Peter and Rob, like the two guys with the thick New England accent. Why do you want to hear them talking to each other? Like who wins there? No one wins. That's the real reason he was out first. That was it. There can be only one. What a 180 from Peter. He totally he uses his yoga long breaths to like because they get the fire going, you know, he's like fire, dude. And then he's gone. And like half an hour later, you're like, what the hell just happened? Well, he just has really good control of his holes. Uh, The holes, the holes. Everyone loves the holes. The holes have been well documented on the funny 115. There's no need for me to make all the same jokes over again. But yes, this is about a guy who has full mastery over all the holes in his body, including his peeper and his pooper. Yeah, that that was it. You know, sometimes people sit back and they go, "Where did my game go wrong?" And with Peter, <laughs> with Peter, it was on camera. Where did my game go wrong? It was when I told them that I could fucking control my my. Ah. I just love like Patricia's disgusted face during that whole thing, and she's like, "All right, I've had enough of this." <laughs> Patricia's disgusted. <laughs> when Patricia's disgusted by something, then you know it's bad. That was like she's symbolically a, she, her falling down. Yeah, Look at it that way. She's a she's a truck assembler, so that's that's pretty pretty bad to disgust her. By the way, this is something a little insider stuff here that kind of came out at the time. I don't think only kind of old school, really dedicated survivor nerds would remember this, but there was a point in the game where Hunter Ellis got busted for having a blog. He was writing a blog as the episodes were airing. And he'd he'd written one about the opening episode, and CBS made him take it down real quick because it gave away stuff that wasn't shown in the episodes. But one thing I always thought that was interesting was that Hunter, in his blog, spoiled that the reason Peter got voted out had nothing to do with him being weird. The reason Peter got voted out is because he was making a a grab for power. Like, it was basically a power struggle between him and Hunter. And, you know, people lined up on either Hunter's side or Peter's side. And, And so basically Hunter was saying that Peter was a lot more hardcore and kind of aggressive than was shown in the episodes. And like I said, he had that blog up there for like a day and CBS made it yank it down. But that's something I always remember when I think about shows like Survivor, where you think you kind of know what happened. But like when Hunter gives you behind the scenes stuff that in no way matches what you saw in the episode. So I just like pointing out stuff like that to people who weren't kind of there following the show at the time that the Peter Peter's story might have been a little more complicated than it looks. It's possible he didn't just sit around and talk about his holes all day. But that's how I want to remember him. Exactly. And it, yeah, someday when he, we have an obituary for Peter, I'd like there to be a mention of the whole scene in it. I also have to give credit to Peter too, because is I could be wrong on this, but is this is, talking about Peter? Is that where where Boston Rob has his confessional where he's like, he's just he's a Fruit Loop. Yeah, that's the, that's the first episode or the moment ever in Survivor history where Boston Rob slams somebody, and it's funny because he's like almost embarrassed to do it. Like later on, Boston. Yeah, later on, Boston. Rob's like, this guy's gay. He's a queer. He probably bangs me. But then, like in episode one, he's like, he's a Fruit Loop, and then he kind of gets all embarrassed, like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> he's got that sheepish smile, you know. You, yeah. You, it's it's something where you know, and we. I mean, Boston Rob, of course, is probably the most well documented survivor we've had in history. But you know, here in Marquesas, this is his first go around, and he's super young, you know, and he's still trying to figure out everything. But you can see the entertainment value is there and you can see him. He knows he's clever. He's saying something clever, but it's something mean. And he's kind of got that sheepish, you know, not a bash thing. I showed my wife, uh, Sur- survivor Marquesas, uh, not too, too long ago, you know, and she's of course seen Rob in, in subsequent seasons. And so it was, it was her first time. And her first thing when she saw him was, Holy hell, he looks young. And then second of all, she was like, boy, you can tell right then this dude is television money. Yeah. That's the thing. It's, I will spend a lot of my time, 
talking trash about Boston Rob and just shitting on him just because I think it's funny how CBS has tried to change his legacy. But I will point out, I was a huge Boston Rob fan in Marquesas. In fact, I don't even think he was called Boston Rob. I think he was just Mariano or the Rob father or Rob back then. Yeah, the Rob father. Yeah, I loved him back then because he was funny and he was young. And it's like he just had this really endearing charisma about him where he wasn't like Mr. Badass take control of everything yet. He was just this kind of funny, snarky, smart kid with a sense of humor and that and that accent, which is ridiculous because it makes him sound like a mush mouth when he's really not. You hear that goblin? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, OK, something funny about that. <laughs> um, the scene where, where Boston Rob chases the rooster and he says, you hear that goblin? Yeah, I wrote a funny 115 entry about that. And for years, people have been writing me emails about that saying, you know, Boston Rob doesn't really say Garblin. I don't know why you're making that up. And I just watched it on, on DVD the other day. He really doesn't say Garblin. I think I'm, I must have had a bad copy on VHS back when I wrote that entry because I don't think Boston Rob actually says Garbling all that strongly. It's pretty close to Goblin. So I, I may have mistaken that due to fuzzy audio quality on my VHS tape. I will fess up right now. Either way, it's hilarious. I mean, oh, it it's, is. Not, it's not saying, I see it's more Bostonian. Did you see that goblin? <laughs> yeah. As, as, as in, what are you going to be for Halloween? You're going to be a ghost <laughs> or a goblin? <laughs> yes. I thought, at the time, that's what I thought too. I thought he maybe saw a goblin up in the tree. I saw a wicked goblin come to my door. I gave it a Snickers bar. <laughs> oh, that's just Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah! Okay, I, sorry, oh, we, we didn't we didn't miss one thing about Zoe. Remember later on uh, when she seductively eats the Snickers bar out of uh, Jeff Probst's <laughs> hand? Yes, that's the one thing I look for when I watch Survivor. I want to see Zoe deep throating a Snickers bar. Oh yeah, erotic. <laughs> I guess you found my type again. <laughs> Zoe's everybody's type. Let's let's not beat around the bush here. Uh, something to note here, and and. I don't know if you guys want to elaborate more on this. This is something that they don't do all the time, but you know they did it in Marquesas, and they're going to continue it in Thailand. It's that each camp is kind of very distinct, not not just in the people, but just with the uh, the the landscape around it. Whereas Mara Amu, you know, their water source kind of sucks, and they don't have anything super fun around them. But they have all these grapefruit trees, and so they've got a very easy supply of food and, you know, very good supply of food, whereas Rotu doesn't have the grapefruit trees, but they've got the kick-ass waterfall and water source near them. So it was kind of like you had two entirely different camps. Each camp had a different personality, not just with the tribes, but with what was there. Oh, brother. Yeah, absolutely- Survivor actually took time to care about little things like that. Just, ugh, I, I, whatever, Survivor 2002. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, I know Jay's just doing this to set up Thailand, which is his favorite season, which is the ultimate one camp versus the other camp. But yeah, it's it's true in Marquesas that Rotu has that waterfall. And what's kind of funny, if you watch the season, that the way the editors use it is every time someone's shown under the waterfall, that's kind of their ascension into power in the game. That's one of my favorite themes of any season ever. If you watch Marquesas, watch for it. Anytime someone wins a crucial vote or does something important... Like, there'll be a shot later in the episode of them standing under the waterfall. So that's kind of the symbol during the season of who is in power. And it becomes really important later on with Sean and John when we have all the flips later. But that that waterfall is such a kick-ass little element of the camp. And that's something I always think of when I think of Marquesas. The spoiler is is that when they, when, they, when they choose a camp, after the merge, they go to Rotu's camp. And it's like, then they all starve at the end of the game. And it's like, my yeah. God, there's all those grapefruits on Mara Amu. What were you thinking? Yeah, but we had a waterfall. Uh, yeah, you know, I, how else am I going to display my power? <laughs> exactly. 
let's see. Um, some other notes I kind of took from episode one. One thing I wrote in real big letters here was Sarah sure was a major character for only being around four episodes. I kind of wrote, is she the most major four episode character ever? Well, she well, had some uh, major assets. Well, I mean, just yeah, in the first episode, so we have the Cleopatra scene, which is like, I mean, would probably be top top four or five moments of the entire season if you look back on it. I mean, that's huge. Everyone mm-hmm. remembers that. They even quiz about it in, in Survivor All-Stars. So you have that. We have her, um, you know, Vesepe talking about her cute little body that she paid a lot of money for. And so she that's should, a great if quote. she's got it, she's, she should flaunt it. Then we have her, the concern with her getting close to Rob. And Gina points that out, you know, that they're, are they making an alliance? What are they doing here? And, um, I guess it's episode, it's episode two. Then when she when she uh, has uh, when she gets on everyone's nerves because she's not doing anything and she wants she no one's in agreement with her on stuff, and <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I mean it just continues on up until her boot episode four. I mean she's like dominates the episode and she almost gets out every episode too. So her name goes up at tribal council and she has some great tribal council lines too. So yeah, you're completely right for four episodes. She makes her mark. Yeah, she was all over the place. And this is like at the time, if you've been watching Survivor week in and week out and following CBS, like she was dominating all the conversations. She was in much more fan conversation than Boston Rob was at the time. Well, you know, <clears throat> hot people are better, you know, at exactly. life. So you're saying Boston Rob's not hot? Hey, Boston Rob will have a wicked hot whenever <laughs> he wants to with his goblins. <laughs> all right. I'm trying to look at some other notes I took from episode one here. I said, I like the scene where Peter wants Sean to teach him some Harlem stuff. <laughs> teach me some Harlem stuff so yeah. I can go back to Boston and know some Harlem. <laughs> it's just one of those scenes I think we've mentioned before that Survivor had a lot of in the early days where two people from completely different places in the country, completely different areas, are kind of interacting in a way that's kind of awkward. And you had that a lot with Big Tom the season before. But, you know, Peter, the hippie bowling alley owner from Maine, and Sean, the guy from Harlem and South Central, trying to have a conversation is just kind of comical. And does that scene have any real purpose for the rest yeah. of the season? It has none. It's just fun. You know, it was just, just a fun. very fun scene. Yeah, it's just Peter wanting to learn some Harlem stuff and going out, going back and kicking it with his homies. Yep. And uh, I guess the only other thing to say is... Uh, True to the first couple episodes, Rotu kicks major ass in the immunity challenge. Marama goes to tribal council. They vote out Holy Peter. Uh, and yeah. that tri- tribal com- council set, that was just this huge effing hut on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, we um, this is something that came up just recently in a survivor message board, like maybe two days ago. And I didn't know this, but I will I will give credit where cre- credit's due. This is uh, Wheezy Wesley. I don't know how she pronounces her name. Her, her name is Louise Craven. She's a real good in Survivor insider, uh, worked in the spoiler community, been really backseeing stuff with all the Survivor seasons over the years. She knows all the details and stuff. But she was just telling us the other day that the reason the uh, Marquesas Tribal Council set is so thrown together is, indeed, because the season was kind of thrown together at the last minute. It was supposed to be in Jordan. They threw in Marquesas at the last minute. And basically, the reason Tribal Council is only a hut, she said, is because what they did is they found a local woodworking school on the island and they said here we'll pay you come build us a hut we need one in like a, a couple of weeks for this tv show and so that's basically a bunch of students built that just in a couple of weeks for tv so even though it looks kind of you know fat albert and the cosby kids compared to some of the other seasons that was really kind of a testament to these kids throwing together this set at the last minute just to help cbs out hey 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 <clears throat> that's right well but actually look actually like 
does look cool in, in a lot of you know angles the way they do it because while they're talking you can see the ocean coming in in the background especially when they get voted off here they're kind of walking parallel to the ocean with the waves crashing in and stuff so I mean it's simple but it looks really good but, but I think another thing that you kind of notice how this location wasn't they didn't have the time to really you know scout out and, and do exactly what they wanted to do is that I mean, literally almost every challenge in Marquesas takes place on the same beach. And you know that because you can almost always see tribal counts in the background. I mean, there's hardly a challenge that you can't... And if they're on a beach doing a challenge, you can almost see tribal counts in the background. Yeah, and I agree, I agree with you. It's Like you said, it's all just in one place, but it's such a unique little setting because you watch every episode and you watch them walking off into the after they've been voted off, and you can just see that really pretty blue water kind of coming up in the background. It's really a distinct tribal council set, and it's just a, a testament to kind of the whole production team, how they really kind of spun straw into gold with Marquesas, how that season shouldn't have worked. None of the aspects really should have worked, yet it's so pretty, and like just the whole thing is just really well done. And yeah, like you said, it's just it's just beautiful to look at without water behind it. And, and more than anything, you know, now they go to tribal council and it rains and they're all fucking wet, you know, and like, uh-huh. you know, you get Jeff Probst in his cargo shirt and he's like, I'm soaked and I have a choker on my neck and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And then they're in this huge hut in Marquesas and it's like no one's getting wet at all, man. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I should point out one other thing that I noticed in my comments here that when I was watching Marquesas last week is that it always jumps out at me when I hear Gina talking and that she doesn't vote people out or vote for them she always votes on them did you guys ever notice that i bet paul did i yeah i actually was pretty recently that i realized that she she said that yeah yeah she votes on i'm gonna vote on peter tonight i'm gonna vote on kathy later i don't know if that's just a a southern thing or just the way gina talks but that always jumps out at me when i when i watch episode one of or any mark uh amu scenes that gina's always voting on people you know and the amount of gina you get in these early episodes too you'd think gina was the winner of the season yeah she was the She's a winner. I was going to say, she was a major character, and this is something that if you didn't watch the season at the time, you wouldn't really understand, but she was, I mean, she was right up there with maybe Colleen and Elizabeth as kind of being beloved by Survivor internet fans for a time. And by Jeff Probes, too, as we'll get into this later, that she was really, I think, Probes' first kind of Survivor girlfriend, but we'll we'll get into that more later. Well, <clears throat> yeah, because Row 2 was so together in those first episodes you know i mean obviously we saw some politicking going on there but they were so together they weren't losing challenges everything was just fantastic over there everyone was working everyone was great oh my god we can fry coconut and it tastes fucking amazing you know everything is so great over at rotu and mara is just a mess and there, you yeah. know we've, we've got sarah running around and we've got crazy peter and we've got rob and sean who are who are likable and funny, but at the same time, you don't like them in the sense of like, wow, I really respect them or something. They were just these smart, you know, kids that were just, you know, snarking on everybody. And you had Vesepia, who was great, but, you know, and she's just kind of narrating at this moment. So Gina's mm-hmm. kind of the heart and soul of what we're seeing on TV. You know, you really sort of to pull for Gina, you know, on, on Mara Amu. And I mean, you pulled for Kathy on Rotum. We're going to talk about Kathy a whole lot. But these first few episodes, when Mara Amu is just absolutely getting their asses kicked, you start to really root for Gina. And so when Mara Amu finally gets an immunity victory down the road and it's Gina, you're like, oh, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, Gina, she was a huge character. And I just watching it again this last week, I was reminded of how awesome she was. So, yeah, we'll, we'll get have a lot more about her later. Um, one thing I wanted to point out, in uh, one of the, the important aspects of the Survivor season at Marquesas is uh, the concept of pulling somebody up. And you'll hear about this a lot during our podcast. You might not be familiar with this term. This is something that came out in interviews after the season where 
Posepia said one of her strategies was she would puff people up, where she'd brag about how awesome they were, how good they were. She'd go to their face and tell them, oh, you're a great leader. You should do this. And this was Vesepia's way of kind of getting people to step into the spotlight so they get uh, like votes drawn toward them. And if you watch episode one, Tribal Council, you'll see she's doing this to Hunter at Tribal Council. She's like, oh, he's a great leader. He steps up. We wouldn't be anywhere without Hunter. And she, this came out in interviews after the season. This was Vesepia's strategy. You puff up these alpha males. They get all strong. They get big-headed. You know, they macho thing that's the pretty girls talking to me saying i'm awesome and they start you know thinking they are awesome and this is what happens to hunter later he gets so powerful he gets himself voted out and a lot of that is the sepia and we'll talk about that later but watch episode one tribal council how she's puffing him up she's kissing his ass like there there's no more ass left to kiss so i guess we are to the vote at this point with peter um as uh peter gets away it's unanimous right seven to one no 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 because no, the sepia votes for um that's right. Uh, Vesepia votes out, doesn't she write Su- Sarah Susie Q or something? Something like that. But it, it's yeah. almost unanimous. I mean, it's a it's a big vote because at the time, and Sean, again... And is, Sean votes for Sarah too, actually. So it's like five to three. Yeah. yeah, like I said, it was kind of a power struggle going behind the scenes between Hunter and, uh, and Peter. So that's one thing you kind of got to keep in mind there. But at the time, a lot of people don't really keep this in context. But at the time, Peter was the first ever male voted out first in Survivor. And that was a big deal because I, along with you know many Survivor fans at the time, thought it would never be possible for a male to be voted out first because you needed the strength. But you know, Peter he he set the trend. He was the very first male voted out first in Survivor. Well, and Peter didn't vote for Sarah, didn't he? Vote for Patricia? And then, yeah, he voted for Mama. Yeah, maybe that was some Harlem stuff he'd learned. Yeah, it's, it's Harlem. I'm gonna vote for Patricia. So I mean, it was. It was kind of an all over the place, but you know, you kind of got the feeling that after that whole speech and Boston Rob saying that he's a Fruit Loop, you kind of thought that he was going to go. Yeah. Yep, that was it. And that was Peter's one episode. Maybe, at least up to that point, he was the most distinct first boot in Survivor history. He's probably been surpassed by others, but at the time, you know, he was, people remembered him for the whole speech for just being kind of creepy and weird. Do you guys have any, any fond Peter memories? No, I think I think I think that's good. You know, Sonia was a good first boot in the first season, and then you had uh, you had poor Deb that we've talked about forever. <laughs> you know, and then Diane was so sick, and she got you know faint, and you know she ate beans with Clarence, and you know the, the, there was stuff going on there with Africa. So then you had Peter, who seemed you know fit, healthy, with it, uh, mostly with it, I suppose. You know, <laughs> but but then he he gets to go, and you know I guess it was more of a power struggle, as you said. But you know we we just were like, oh my god, that guy's weird, and then they voted out the weird guy. So you yeah. know don't be don't be weird those first three days. And you know <laughs> I mean concluding that this episode here, I would make two points that Marquesas already has established that one. Yes, you can go back to a beach location. I think beforehand they like really were they were thinking, okay, we can't reuse an island now because we are, we already did it the first time. So I think one, it, it you know showed that you could find another island that was different enough, that was beautiful enough that you could reuse it. And the second point here with Peter is the fact that Survivor can remain un- uh, unpredictable enough that the older woman is going to get voted off in the first episode, which I mean almost happened. If Patricia would have gone home, that would have been right in line with you know with the Sonia, mm-hmm. with the Deb, with the Diane. So I mean. Episode one is already you know, breaking ground for Spire Marquesas. That's what they should do in the future. They should reuse locations, like, many times. <laughs> yeah, we can play with some Marquesas. That would be awesome. You know, like, All they right. should go somewhere, like Samoa, and then, like, <laughs> you know, they could be there for, like, four seasons in a row. Five, six, eight million. 
That would just be the greatest stretch of episodes in Survivor history. I would oh, be so amazed okay. by that. No doubt. No doubt. All right. Before we leave this first episode, I got to talk about Peter. This is something I've, I've mentioned kind of to people before. Some people know I actually have a history with Peter in that I was kind of friends with him after Survivor. In that I wrote these all-star stories. I wrote one about Hawaii, one Alaska. And then my third one was called All-Star Survivor Greece. And it was kind of a second chances story. Name dropper. Exactly. And one of my major characters in the story was Peter. And apparently Peter got wind of this story. His wife read it or something, and she loved it. His wife was just the biggest Survivor fan out there. She's the one that kind of encouraged him to apply for Survivor in the first place. And she read the story, and she's like, my God, Mario, you wrote Peter better than Peter could write himself. Like, how do you know all this stuff about him? And I'm like, I don't know. I just kind of source stuff out from his bio just by watching him kind of how I think he'd be in real life. And she's like, I got to get Peter to read the story. So she got Peter to read the story with him in it, and he loved it. So he's writing me. So we were writing emails back and forth all the time, and we talked on the phone. Like, I actually got to know the guy pretty good. He's a really cool guy. And I have to say, you know, he's, he's a little odd. He's kind of an ex-hippie. He does the yoga, but he's not really as weird as, as he came off on TV, obviously. They just kind of turn him into a caricature for, for the show. But I will say a lot of survivors have read my stories over the years. Like, I've sent copies to him and stuff. Peter is the only one who insisted on paying me back the postage. Like, I've sent my stories to probably like 40 other subscribers over the years. No one ever gives me anything for them. Peter is the one guy. He's like, look, I would not feel right if I didn't pay you back the 45 cents for this paper you sent me. And I'm like, you don't need to send me. He's like, no, you don't understand. I would not feel right. So that's my thing with Peter, that he's a really good guy in real life. And he gave me a lot of inside dirt on the season, what was happening behind the scenes. And when we get to Gabriel... I'll have a lot to say about Gabriel because Peter and Gabriel are basically the same person. They're like father and son. And Peter told me some amazing stories about Gabriel that we'll get to later. But I just want to say that Peter's a good guy and he's he's really nothing like the weirdo that you saw on TV. And I think uh, at least that should be said one time in his Survivor legacy. No shit. I love Peter Gabriel, too. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Genesis. We're all Genesis fans here. But yeah, Peter... His wife even told him when he, when he applied for the show, she's like, you're either going to win or you're going to get voted off first because you don't relate to people. <laughs> That's exactly what happened to him. I only like this story if, the, if Peter's wife said, wow, you wrote a wicked good story there, Mario. <laughs> no, she didn't say it. Although Peter did tell me that even though he owns a bowling alley, he's never actually been in it. So that's so people think he's a bowling alley owner. He hangs out in the back and like makes fries and pours people's Cokes. But he told me, no, he's like a businessman yoga guy. And he owns the bowling alley, but he's only been in it like maybe once or twice in his life. So, again, there you go. Do you know, he only went in it once to, uh, to, to film that opening shot where it says, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, Peter, a bowling alley owner. And then in the background, there's someone who like throws the ball down and kind of like slides down on his knee. There's, there's someone doing something goofy at the bowling ball in the background. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Peter went in one time to the bowling alley because he wanted to show off some of his Harlem stuff. So he went up to like a group of brothers in the bowling alley, started talking, and they beat him within an inch of his life, so he never came back What did he say? Hey, I'm chilling. Yeah. What up, bro? So yes, and we will end our Peter discussion with that. We can move on to episode two. Yay. Yay. <laughs> All right, so what happens in episode two? Um, we get some nasty uh, sun, cream ap- sun, sun cream application onto uh, Patricia Mama. Okay. I do have in my notes that the, the Gabriel laugh and the Kathy laugh both make their appearance in episode two. The Two of the more distinct laughs in the show's history, and they're both on the same tribe. And you hear them both in, uh, on Rotu in episode two. Kathy's is the ha-ha-ha-ha, and Gabriel's is the ha-ha-ha. Kathy also has that scene where she calls the tribe over and is trying to get them to like her again, and she pulls out the uh, 
like all of the uh, shells and crabs that she had, uh, you know, uh, collected that day. Was that episode two? That was episode, it might have been episode three, but basically, yeah, the first two, even three episodes, I just wrote in my notes, it's it's basically the shitting on Kathy episodes. Oh, God. The only, yeah, the only thing you see about Camp Road 2 is how everyone hates Kathy. It's like, oh, we're a love tribe, but we hate Kathy. Poor Kathy. She just, she yeah, she just, ugh. I love her so much, and she just was, I mean, I didn't in episode two, you know, it, it was hard to like her just because she was on the outs, and 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 she just was so insistent on things, you know, like, hey, man, we got to be getting the food, man, we got to be going out, I mean, we got to get out there and survive, you got you to gotta get the food, man, the, the fact that they just want to sit around on the beach, I, 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 I just don't get it. <laughs> this is a question I'd like to bring up, I'm like, I'm curious about your opinions on this one. Do you think Kathy was really that grating, was that annoying, and everyone hated her that much, or do you think they kind of overemphasized that in the episodes to build up her story arc, because they knew how much of a comeback she would have later? I'm just curious. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe she really did, you know, come off way stronger than she should have and stuff, and really did annoy these people. But I mean, it's kind of hard to believe that she was that bad, considering how much everyone loves Kathy. Everyone loves Kathy and All Stars. So I mean, either she was like abnormally, like obnoxious, way, you know, way more than than what she usually is in real life, or we did get a really big emphasis on on something that wasn't as big of deal you know, than it really was. We never got to see him go to tribal council. We never got to see, you know, if for sure Kathy was for sure the first one out, if everyone really felt that way. So, I mean, there's that, mm-hmm. that possibility, but obviously there was still some, some resentment there, especially when, when, um, you know, it goes later on when, when the tribes mix up that the Rotu tribe says, okay, we're going to vote off Kathy first at the merge. So there obviously was, you know, still something there. Yeah, I think she just, you know, she had conversations even with Gabriel about, you know, not fitting in. And then they had to have a nice BB moment where they all talked about, uh, you know, how the hut didn't fit any, everyone in it because people are taking too much room in the hut. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, episode two, even though we're kind of downplaying it here, it's clearly not as big a deal as episode one. But episode two is the introduction of the Mata Amu morning show, which was a big deal. Mario loves the morning show. He'll talk about this for the next oh forty five minutes. So get ready. <laughs> I love yeah. I love the morning show. I thought it was maybe the funniest thing in Survivor history up to that point. And again, when Jeff Probst was saying preseason that Mata Amu or the the Marquesas cast was the funniest cast ever, he's got to be talking about the morning show because those guys were just killing. I mean, almost every joke on those scenes is is a killer. And it's not even like the main people like Sean and Rob pulling out all the jokes. You have Hunter killing with jokes. So I don't know what was going on in the water those mornings. But yeah, the, those are just some great character-driven scenes that add nothing to the show strategy-wise whatsoever, but it's just fun to watch. Yeah, Hunter was the uh, the the chopper guy in the sky, right? And he was beating yes. his chest to... to... So yeah, that's, that's fun. That's good stuff. Yeah. And we don't need to recap. Most people know the, the morning show. If you've never seen it, or just kind of look for Marquesas on YouTube or, or get a copy of the DVD and just watch The Morning Show. One of my favorite little, you know, meaningless scenes in Survivor history. It's just people sitting around being bored and finding something to do when they're bored. And they invented, you know, a fun way to start every day. And I know from the interviews that they said they did this every day, even though we only saw two on the show. But they did this every morning, and this was a part of a way to stay sane when you're on an island with nothing to do. Yep, we start to see that Rotu works and that Mara Amu is lazy, just getting our, yes. our workers and non-workers all skirted out. This is just normal Survivor stuff now. We're, we're getting into a groove. Let's see, I'm trying to go through my Episode 2 notes here. Uh, I said Episode 2 is the one where Sean and V start bringing up race and talk about how African-Americans 
have it harder in a game like Survivor because there's a different level that they have to relate to people compared to like all the people that are Caucasian. And I know at the time, this was kind of a big deal on the message boards. A lot of people didn't like seeing that discussion on Survivor. Now, what do you guys think about those race scenes between Sean and V? I mean, this is this is the start of it of a story arc that you know goes all the way to the end, and it's it's almost one of those things where the issue is like so much more deeper than they can even get into on the show. So when I watch the show, it comes. I don't. I just like I can't really connect with it or relate to it, especially later on when it becomes this big race issue that I don't I don't really see or really understand the race issue they're bringing up you know, later on in the season. So for me, either the show doesn't go deep enough into it or that it wasn't as big of an issue as Vesepia and Sean made it out to be. And I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that, you know, to downplay something that, you know, major that could have been going on, but I'm just saying as a viewer, it was, it's hard for me to really like, you know, dive into that because really they're the only ones that kind of bring it up and talk about it and just doesn't really, you know, I, I don't know. For the record, we should point out that Paul is from Montana and he's never seen a black person. <laughs> Survivor, Survivor really will open up the world, the world for me to, that, that there are people who are not white out there. So you're right. Exactly. As a person from Montana, I should shut my mouth. <laughs> is this like sixth grade Paul going, what on earth is that? <laughs> we should have Sean come over to Montana and teach Paul some Harlem stuff. <laughs> teach him some, and then Paul will be like, now you tip the cow like this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're joking about it. But yeah, I always thought that was an interesting scene. And like Paul said, they don't really go enough into it. It's just kind of it's kind of weird how they just kind of skirt the edges of the racial issue. But Sean makes a point in there that everyone assumes that Sean and V are going to be an alliance just because they're black. And I think he actually makes a good point, although it comes up later in the season. I mean, it comes up over and over later in the season that are Sean and V an alliance. And Sean will say, no, we're not. People just assume we are because we're black. But you know, just because we're black, we're going to be friends because we're naturally going to bond because we have something in common that other people don't have here. But it is interesting that this kind of came up for the first time in Marquesas. I don't know if race had ever really come up in the other seasons before. I'm trying to think here. Other than Tom calling Clarence boy, which I guess is in a whole different way it came up. Well, I think that that's, that's part of the thing. You know, Sean did mention it in, in, in whatnot that people assumed that Sean and V were an alliance. And V is so smart, she's just going to let people think what they think, you know, and she even says as such in confessionals and whatnot. But I, I think that, you know, it, it's one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. You know, everyone's like, oh, well, Sean and V are an alliance. And they, they, I don't think they ever, you know, sat on the beach and had one of those fun, phony, baloney hand, handshake moments like, you and me, <laughs> final two, you know, yeah. shake, shake, shake. But, you know, know if everyone's just going to uh pigeonhole them into you know oh those two are working together it's kind of like they don't then need to it's kind of like aren't you then creating them working together by kind of you know shoving them together it's true and in all fairness i assume that paul and every other white person in montana are working together so i I can see how this would come up they're plotting our doom (laughs) they're all plotting they're all lying to me man I think I think we heard Paul's feelings. I'm sorry, Paul. <laughs> sorry, Paul. <laughs> I'm just going to go jump in the waterfall and cry. <laughs> well, then that would mean that you're awfully powerful if you're in the waterfall. Well, it could also it could also be a moment of weakness like when uh if if you're not directly under the waterfall and you just like do a belly flop in like Kathy does, then uh it could be a moment of weakness. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to jump in naked penis first like John does. Yes. Also that. I think also episode two, if, if, if I'm not mistaken, it's got some good it's, – it's got two good challenges in it. It's got, it's got the boat challenge where Gabriel goes down there underwater for like 85 minutes and, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I should I should point out at this time we're going to talk a lot about Gabriel as as prophesized earlier. But Gabriel was raised like in a commune and stuff. I always joke that he was like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Twins, where he was raised on an island and stuff, and raised to be a perfect little specimen of humanity. But yeah, the scene where they have to dive underwater and grab the rocks and pull them out of the boat. It's funny because like all the people go down there, they pull out like one rock or two rocks, and they they run out of breath, so they have to swim up to the surface. Meanwhile, here's Gabriel, who's probably been doing this in his entire life just for fun. He dives down there and he takes out like 20 rocks at one time. And it's the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen in a challenge. If you watch episode two, watch for it. You see Boston Rob down there pulling, struggling to pull out five rocks. And then Gabriel's down there and he's actually like drinking a cup of tea as he's slowly pulling 20 rocks out one by one. It's, it's just, there's a reason Rotu never lost a challenge with him. It's twofold. It, it, first of all, Gabriel went down there and just manimaled out like half the rocks, you know, in one go in, in a little bit while Maramu is, is struggling. And then second of all, Rotu had the common sense to, you know, instead of bringing the boat to the surface and bailing the boat out, they flipped the boat over mm-hmm. and, you know, got it free of the water. So, you know, it was it, it was smart either way. But it's it, it's a classic challenge. It, it rears its head again in All-Stars. And it, this is this yeah. is the start of it in, in uh, Marquesas. And it's, it's just dominated by Gabriel. So watch that. And then uh, we get the immunity challenge where we hold get on, hold on. Wait, well, oh, sorry. Well, there was one more thing in that reward challenge I got to point out. This is Gabriel in a nutshell right here. You know, he was kind of raised in a selfless commune where people kind of think of the others instead of themselves. If you watch this challenge, there's a great scene where you know, everyone, they got dive down, they get rocks, they come up, they're completely out of breath. So they have to wait like five minutes before they can go down again. Gabriel comes up after his first time, and this is the exact quote that comes out of his mouth. I got 19. I'll go back. So not only did he grab 19, which is 19 times more than anybody else on his tribe, he's immediately going to jump right down just because that's best for his tribe. And I always think that's funny when I watch it. Beast mode. Exactly. Beast mode. Yeah, and then and then uh, and then this is this is a uh, this is gross food challenge. The gross of gross food. <laughs> yes, this is it. This is I've always said this is my favorite of the gross food challenges. I think the Africa one is fun with the blood, but to me nothing tops Fafaru, which was basically where they take sh- a piece of fish and they basically shit on it and they had to drag it through like a sewer for a couple days and they leave it out in the sun and then someone shits on it again and then they have to eat it. It's literally what Andy Dufresne crawled through to free himself <laughs> in Shawshank Redemption. Yes. Dude, I, I, I hate seafood as it is, so this would be like the worst thing ever for me to eat on a gross food challenge. Oh, no. Th- this, this has got to be the worst. I mean, this is awful. This is one that breaks Boston Rob, and you know how tough he is. And I, I've had a lot of fun making fun of Boston Rob over the years for the Fafaru challenge, but like... That, that took balls to eat Fafaru. I don't know if I could go within 50 feet of that stuff. And it's amazing that he's the only one who couldn't eat it. Like, how could Nalia eat that? How could all these people eat that and not Boston Rob? Like, that is some nasty, stank shit. And as much problem as Nalia has, she destroys him in that final thing. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> this is the thing. For Boston Rob's legacy, you know, greatest survivor player ever, took four tries, blah, blah, blah. Well, I said blah, blah, blah that time. But uh, for all of Boston Rob's legacy, yes, he got destroyed by Nalia. <laughs> You didn't, see, like you, didn't, you didn't see that in the um, uh, his the, the little uh, reel of film before uh, Boston after he won Redemption Island. They didn't they didn't show that flashback. Yeah, surprisingly, they, they left that out, and they left out the part after the twist where he sits around and mopes for six days. 
Oh god, yeah, no, this is gross. And then and then they added the extra gross, which is an awesome survivor dick move where it's more like, you know, we've got this fucking rotting fish that's the grossest <laughs> thing you've ever had and it's in its own rotting juices. But uh we're going to make you stick your face in there to get it. <laughs> My favorite moment in that whole challenge, it's either the first or the second time Rob eats, I forget which one, but he puts the fish in his mouth and he starts chewing and like on the fourth chew his face just stops and he freezes cuz he finally realizes what's he what is he doing? And it's one of my all-time favorite moments of the season. Just watch face, uh, Rob's face freeze in terror when he realizes what he's doing right now. This is wicked hard. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, so Fafaru takes down Boston Rob, and the Mata Amus lose the second challenge in a row. Row two remains undefeated. Yes. And so Sarah goes, right? Right? Uh, this is no, Mama. This is, no, what? <clears throat> This is the episode that depressed Paul because he was waiting for, you know, Mama to fall down something and roll down a hill and she gets voted out. Didn't get, get as much as a stumble. <laughs> get out of here, Sarah. Keep the old people on the screen. <laughs> Ew, nasty. Ew, but she didn't go home. And this is, again, the theme that Sarah, you know, is, is usually the threat, but she doesn't go home. Yeah, I mean, probably a, a much closer call for Sarah than she would like, too. A three to four vote. <laughs> Ah, yes. Poor Patricia. Uh, You know, Patricia never really left much of a mark on me. She was one of those characters, kind of, there's there's always one or two every season who I don't really remember. They don't do a lot, and unfortunately, Mama's the one in season two. Like, I remember Peter. I always remember Peter and his holes, but Mama's just one of those that kind of got, kids forgotten, I think. Is it because she's nasty? Oh, nasty. (laughs) Well, they were like, there's an older woman on on the season. Huh? Is she a flight attendant? No. Oh. Oh, man. But yes, Patricia, although I'll be as diplomatic as possible when I'm saying this next part, but Patricia, you know, for as tough as she was, she probably works with men in the, you know, what was she, a welder or machine repair or something? Truck assembler. She a, yeah, she was a tough woman, but she was significantly out of shape. At that point, was probably the most out of shape person who'd ever been on Survivor. I always wonder, did they even assume she would get past day three? That's a good question. I'm just wondering, though, like... If you cast Patricia, like, she's the oldest woman on the team, she's clearly the most out of shape, like, why do you think she's going to last more than three days? It's amazing she lasted the six days. And Again, I say that as diplomatically as possible, but, like, they don't really have overweight people on Survivor. Yeah, out of shape people that can't do physical challenges usually don't go far in Survivor, much less win it twice. (laughs) Yes. Hey. (laughs) Yes, but, yeah, I mean, she's the oldest woman on the tribe, too, so it's just... I mean, it's amazing she lasted two episodes, and I, I give her full respect for getting out there because I never played Survivor, but it's just she, she was an odd casting choice. I will leave it at that. All right, odd casting choice. We need to we need to keep a running counter on this, Paul. Okay. Yes, and of course, by default, that means Peter was not odd. Peter was not an odd casting choice. Patricia <laughs> was an odd casting choice. Yeah, Peter. Peter was every man. I see a lot of my grandfather in him. Was it? Is Peter actually your grandfather? Is that is that we're like, dude? I kind of knew Peter. I'd I'd mail him every once in a while. He knew my stuff because he's your granddad. You know, my grandfather doesn't return my calls. Come on, Jay, eh. play off. Sorry. All right, then. Now we go to episode three, and something I have always said about Marquesas, and I will say it many times during this podcast, is that I've always said Marquesas has the strongest string of episodes in Survivor history, where it's like six episodes in a row, they're just bam, 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 like all classic. And we're about to start right here with episode three. This is where it all kind of starts. 
I mean, and I, I'll agree with you there. I think I think Marquesas does get off to a, to a slower start, especially. I mean, that first episode's always exciting, but the second episode really was again more setting us up, building us up, we get to know the characters more. But you know, starting right at the beginning of three, the fallout after that tribal council. I mean, definitely as far as I can remember, the most heated like you know like uh, argument, argument. I mean, it wasn't like a full blown argument, but discussion going on following a tribal council that we've had yet. We have this nighttime fire; they're going back and forth, and and uh, you, you know, Sean accuses them of being disrespectful and say it's not disrespect and and um he says well if you don't communicate what you want then that's a form of disrespect and then then i love that gina makes the point that just kind of you know kind of pulls the logic out under under you know sarah and sean's logic there is is she says you know they don't want they don't want you to tell them to do anything um because you know like sarah said at tribal council she's you know 24 years old her mom hasn't told her what to do in eight years and so you know they don't they don't want to be told what to do they don't want to be bossed around sean doesn't want to be bossed around going to the watering hole but yet again they they want to be in the loop and communicated with when they want them to do something so gina says i don't know what they want like telecommunication or i don't know i don't know what they're looking for <laughs> that scene is great that's starting the episode three right that's the very first scene right where they're all yes. sitting around the yeah what's funny is i remember from interviews Vesepia would say that this was kind of her thing this was part of her strategy is that Whenever there was something brewing in camp, like a fight, there was a grudge, someone was in a bad mood, she would say they should all sit down and talk about it. They should have a group discussion. And Vesepia, I remember in an interview, said this was her strategy because she knew inevitably it would break down into a fight because there were so many hard feelings among the tribe and it's just such a heated game. That So under the guise of let's all sit around and talk about it and get this problem out, she would basically instigate fights. She knew that the troublemakers would run into each other. And meanwhile, V can just kind of sit back and do nothing. And this was part of her strategy that I've always loved about the sepia, that she doesn't get nearly enough credit for, that this is how she wins Survivor. She's like, guys, let's talk about this, which is the worst thing you want to do in some instances. And so they think she's helping. They all come to each other's throats. All of a sudden, there's a new target. It's not the sepia. She's just sitting back, staying out of the drama. And this is why I love the sepia and why I think people should appreciate her. She did Sanders' strategy originally before Sandra did it. I think she even has the line in there. That she says, you know, this stuff has been sitting on our shoulders too long. Yeah, <laughs> and she's just totally BSing them. Ah, uh, stay what, out of drama. Stay yeah, drama free. That's the I mean, way that's to the be. Thing. That, that, that's the theme of the season. Stay out of the drama. If the drama's there, I'm not there. And you watch, and it's great because the season is chock full of drama, and that's why she wins. She spells it out, and it's pretty obvious if you watch that she's going to win. She's the narrator. Everything she says is kind of rational, level-headed. That's the thing. It's if she gets a total winner edit, and it's been mischaracterized over the years that she's come, her win comes out of nowhere. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Just watch for it. She's really savvy. She. The only problem is she doesn't brag about it. That's why she doesn't sit there and brag about it like other winners do. She just kind of sits back and stirs up shit and sits back and lets everyone else take a fall. I think my favorite line from her is something on the lines of, you know, I, you know, I'm with you guys, but as far as the drama and the chit chat, bump that. I am yeah. with it. <laughs> bump that. Bump that. Just bump that it's drama. Like, she's Great super, catchphrase. She's super visible. She's super likable. Again, I, I when I showed this up uh, this season to my wife, she didn't know who the winner was, and she's watching it. And she just those first things. She's like, "God, that Vesepia is so smart with everything she says." And I'm just sitting there smiling, going like, "Yep." Yeah, that's the thing. It's people have hated Vesepia over the years, and we're going to talk more about this later. I don't want to go off my giant tangent. We'll just do a small tangent. But yeah, it's just, it's criminal that she never got the credit that she deserved. And I remember writing a column right after Marquesas ended saying, I think one day Vesepia will be remembered as the best winner of all time. And it never happened. It never came close to happening. And I don't know why. We got to talk about this more later, but it's just criminal how much that she's had to almost 
apologized for winning Survivor over the years. I'm like, she fucking was a better winner than any of the first three. You know, it's it's almost it's like I think had had Vesepia ever get, gotten the chance to come back, which I mean, I think that boat is kind of sailed by now. Who knows? Maybe an all winter season or something. But you know, I think this a kind of a thing happened with Sandra. No one really respected Sandra's game until she came back and did it again. And like, oh wow, this strategy actually is really legitimate. It really works up against the greatest players, you know, of of all mm-hmm. time. And she could do it again. And that's when people really started respecting Sandra. I think I think that low key game that Sandra and Vesepia have is one that's not one that's easy to portray to the audience. It's not one that the audience particularly loves and so it would take a second time to you know to really show what what a strategist Vesepia is yeah and it's just amazing if you look at it logically there was no point in the game where she was going to get voted out it wasn't even close i mean she she's like sandra well except sandra is so weak in challenges i could see sandra going out in episode one two or three Vesepia won't this is something that people don't know about her she's like an all-american athlete she's in the like the United States Military Hall of Fame for basketball and running or something, but she's like a world-class athlete. So it's I've always said she is the ultimate survivor player. She will never get voted out. There's no way to ever vote Vesepia out unless you know who she is. I'd like to, uh, you know, we, we get to see it here in episode three. Episode three is a special episode. I'd like to shower it with praise. Maybe a, maybe a, golden, <laughs> a golden shower of praise. Aw, uh, that's sweet. <laughs> yes. We are talking, of course, about this is the episode where Kathy has to come pee on John. This is the best. This is just so yeah. good. <laughs> we have nothing to say about it. <laughs> yes. hey, hey, Paul, let's talk about pee. About pee. About urine. Pro or con. Love that. <laughs> yes. It clean, cleanses my body of, extreme, of fluids, of, of uh, toxins. <laughs> yes, okay. And to be serious, this is the scene where John is out swimming. He, what did he be, punctures his hand on a sea urchin or something. And I, I hate to make fun of it because it looks like it probably hurts. Like, I don't want to poke myself with a sea urchin. Those things are nasty. But John comes back to camp and knowing that there is one good way to kill uh, toxins from a sea urchin, he needs someone to come and pee on him, which my first question is, why couldn't he pee on himself? I mean, Lord knows he's probably capable of doing that. Is there some reason that someone else has to pee on you? That's a good question with a dude. Well, with anyone, like... You know, you if you can control your pee, I would think to pee on your own hand. This is not peeing on your, you know, on the on your back or something like that. This is literally yeah. on like your fingertip. That she, I uh, call urine fetish. Fetish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, and it's funny that the first person who runs down is Pascal of all people. Like, okay, of all the people I think would be most appropriate to urinate on my hand, I'm going to get the respectable Southern judge. Yes, and then he has stage fright, which is fantastic. <laughs> yes, it shrivels up. Pappy can't do it. Pappy stays flappy. <laughs> but Kathy is a raring to go. Kathy's raring to go. She's like, she's a go-getter. Like, I'll be right over there, man. I'll pee on you, man. <laughs> I, I, I'll go over there. and I'll pee, I'll pee on you, man. We'll do it. And then she pees, and then she keeps peeing, and then she keeps peeing, and she keeps peeing, and she keeps peeing, and she, peeing, and she, peeing, and she just peed a lot. <laughs> That's my favorite part of the scene. Like, it takes maybe, like, five seconds of urination to kill the germs and kathy literally just keeps just going keeps and it going. keeps going yeah. it's like frank drebin in the naked gun she's going for like three minutes <laughs> well i heard it i heard john actually give an interview not not too long ago and he was talking they were talking about this scene and he was saying that yeah it kind of got awkward there because you know he was so 
so thankful that she peed on him because he's like, it instantly felt better once the urine hit the wound and everything was great. But then she kept peeing and he's like, I don't know what to do. Like, do, do I pull my hand out? Do I, you know, so he's like, I, I kind of just left it in there because I didn't, you know, what, what is protocol for peeing on hand? <laughs> that was a great scene. And then Kathy's like, and then afterwards I noticed it was kind of weird. I'm like, well, yeah, no shit. Like you're, you're, <laughs> you're crouching down with your nooner over his hand. <laughs> Yes, it's just, weird. Which is like the last thing John wants to see. <laughs> yeah. John's like, can we get Pascal over here, please? <laughs> <clears throat> yes. So anyway, we have great fun. We've had great fun making fun of the peeing scene over the years. I dedicated a funny 115 entry to it. Everyone loves it. It's one of those beloved scenes in Survivor history that's unintentionally funny because it's just awkward. <laughs> I got nothing else to say about it. I apologize if John's listening. I bet, in fact, although I bet John loves it as much as everybody else does because I know he's a big Survivor nerd. But thank goodness, John, you were part of Survivor history. You got to be in the, the star of the peeing scene. Awesome, you, awesome scene. Love it, love it. <clears throat> so yeah, and then uh, what else is episode three? Episode three, we also get the. Uh, the second appearance of the Good Morning Mata Amu radio show. Ooh, are we talking about no-nos? Yeah, this is the black no-nos or the white no-nos? <laughs> Al <laughs> Sharpton's calling in. <laughs> and, and it has one of the... First this, First off, we have to say this has one of the most underrated quotes in Survivor history, where Boston Rob explains to us how a no-no is spelled. It's spelled N-O-N-O. <laughs> <laughs> As if there was any other way to spell it. It's, it's spelled N-O-N-O. And the, the, the friggin' annoying... But yes, but then we have the morning show where we have the great scene where which ones are the which no-nos are the ones that bite you, whether the black ones or the white ones, and then is it Hunter, I think, that says, oh, it's the black ones that always bite me. And, and then Sean's ring, like, yeah. ring, this is Al Sharpton calling, this is an outrage. <laughs> that was a great scene. And again, one of the funniest casts in Survivor history, and Sean, you know, a lot of people wouldn't believe this, was really not well-liked by the fans on the boards. A lot of people thought he was too militant. It was kind of too angry and brought up race all the time. But Sean, to me, is just a really complex guy. He's really interesting because he was young. And he had such complex kind of views on the world. that He was angry. He was militant. But he was also very thoughtful, very funny, very philosophical. He just kind of knows a lot about how the world works. So I think it's unfair for people to just paint him as this angry, you know, lazy black guy, which he got portrayed as on TV. Because I don't think he was like that at all. I think he was one of the more complex people on the show in the early years. And I think over the years, his reputation has kind of improved, but at the time, it really wasn't very well. He wasn't well-liked. He was not well-liked, but he was a schoolteacher from Harlem. Like, that's heroism in and of itself. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, he's, he's going out there in the world, and he's, he's putting his money where his mouth is. He's uh, teaching where the kids probably need to be teached the most. He goes to Harlem, he goes to South Central. He's, he's well-educated himself, you can tell. So, yeah, I like Sean. I, he's always one of those guys I wish I would have interacted with at some point over the years or who I wish would have done more interviews and stuff. Because I think he's a cool guy. I'd like to know more about him. In fact, I'm always curious what he's like now, 10 years later. I think it's a shame because you're right. You know, he was not a, a well-liked character at the time, which I think hurt his chances for coming back on a future All-Star seasons and stuff like that, which is still so far from our minds while watching uh, Survivor Marquesas. But, you know, he, he's someone that I would have really liked to see come back and play again. Absolutely. Although I will say, out of all that, when I used to write my All-Star stories kind of in the early years, Sean was the one character I didn't want to write. I was scared to write him because I didn't really understand Sean. And I come from a 
world that is possibly as sheltered as Paul in Montana, where I, <laughs> not a particularly diverse place, uh, Western Washington, the suburbs of Seattle. So I, I was always afraid if I started to try to write Sean and make him sound like Sean, it would kind of sound like a parody of Sean. I didn't want to do that. So he was one I was always kind of scared to try to write as a fictional character. And it's just because he is, he's very complex. He's got a lot going on in there, and you can't characterize him in just a little five-second soundbite. I can almost see your email now. Dear Sean, I am trying to write a Survivor fan fiction. Please teach me some Harlem <laughs> stuff. Yes. Your pal Mario. Exactly. <laughs> Paul can relate to this. He's, he's, it's, it's hitting so close to home. Yeah, he's been it's, quiet. It's a, little, it's a little too close to home for me. <laughs> So yeah, so you had the second, uh, you had the second morning show. You have, uh, I think, episode three is also where we get the Pascal and Nalia kind of bonding and kind of becoming a poor man's Roger and Elizabeth here. Happy and Nalia. <laughs> oh, Happy and Nalia! I was huge. I mean, I still am, but I was huge uh, Pappy and Nalia fan. Now, were you team Pappy and Nalia, or are you team Roger and Elizabeth? Because you can't like both. Well, I mean, my my loyalty would always be with uh, Roger and Elizabeth, but uh, but I did like Pappy and Nalia as well. Yeah, see, I, I don't think among the fan base they took off as well as Roger and Elizabeth did. And I think because a lot of people were kind of saying, look, I've seen this before. You know, the old guy, the young girl, you know, we've, we've done this already. In fact, <clears throat> I should point out a lot, a lot of kind of the worldview of Survivor around Marquesas was kind of been there, done that. Survivor 4 was the first season. I remember seeing a lot of fans I knew and mainstream media outlets that wrote about Survivor. Season 4 was the first one where I, where I started catching a lot of people saying, like, Wow, we're on season four already. They're cranking these out fast, aren't they? So, the Pascal and the Leo was kind of like a, a repeat of what we'd seen, and it kind of fit in with the whole. It's they're all almost running out of stuff to do on the show, and this is why I think Marquesas becomes important later because there's new stuff coming we've never seen, and it's going to come in a couple episodes. But yeah, I've always thought the Pascal and the Leo stuff never took off as much as it should have because I don't think the 100% of the audience really invested in them as being the sweethearts of the season, other than Paul. Just me. Well, who who's well? I guess what the sweetheart of the season ultimately ends up being Kathy, right? You know, Kathy. yeah, you Kathy know? is amazing, but that's different. Yeah, we'll get to her. Yeah, I, I would say Kathy was maybe second to only maybe Colleen among kind of beloved among the Survivor fans at the time. I mean, she was it was like almost a hundred percent of people behind her at the end, and it's I've never seen someone like that since. I think maybe she was the last one where it's just universally loved by the Survivor fans. And it's funny because she has such a cool arc. And we'll get to that later as to why a lot of people hate the ending so much. And a lot of that's because everyone was so pro-Kathy. Kathy, I think, is one of the more, you know, we're going to get to All-Stars, you know, in five years when we get to the All-Stars podcast. But uh, I think that, you know, when you talk about no-brainers to return back to that All-Star season, I think Kathy is almost as no-brainer as you get. She was super, super important, and her story is super good. And so I think that some of these more familiar uh, stories, like Nilia and Pascal, kind of sort of get lost in the shuffle. A, with, yeah. you know, to things like Kathy, and B, to, you know, characters like Rob, who just kind of ate the screen every time you saw him. And you're like, damn, this is good stuff. Yeah. And Kathy, that's the thing. Like, a lot of people over the years have said, oh, my God, Russell got robbed, or... Rob Sesternino got robbed. You should have won. That was his season. People forget Kathy was the original right there. Like Lex was a little too disliked for people to really rally behind that. Oh, he should have won. And like Colby, everyone thought he was kind of an idiot for what he did at the end. But Kathy, oh man, like almost a hundred percent of Survivor fans would have said, "Fucking Kathy got robbed." That was her season, and they were just outraged. So people got to remember Kathy was the original out of all those. Cool. Kathy original for a lot of lot of things. <laughs> 
yeah, she was just great. Just being that's unfortunately a lot of people just remember her from All Stars, but that should just be secondary. Her her legacy was Marquesas, and it was huge. And it was huge, starting with pissing on John. Starting with pissing on John. Really, that was turning point. That was the moment. Pissed on him literally and then figuratively later, but we'll get there. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so what else is going on in episode three? Um, I have in my notes here that the Pascal and Nalia thing starts, but it's really not just Pascal and Nalia. If you really kind of follow the story of the season and you know some of the stuff behind the scenes, if you watch, it's not just Pascal and Nalia. It's, Pal- it's Pascal, Nalia, and Gabriel. And it's really a triangle in that you have Nalia and Gabriel, who are kind of the couple. They're kind of like dating on the tribe. And you have Pascal, who's like the father figure to both of them. And this makes much more sense later down the road when Gabriel gets voted out and Pascal, you know, cries because his son is gone. So when you watch Marquesas, that's what you got to keep. They're the holy little triad right there. It's Pascal, Nalia, and Gabriel. It's a threesome and not in a sexual way. <laughs> Maybe two of them. <laughs> and to you. So, you yeah, know. <clears throat> That Pascal's one so hot, that, hot that, that actually is pretty sexual, then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, so just I want people to remember that, that it's not just Pascal and Ilya, it's Pascal and his two kids that are dating. <laughs> oh, this is taking a turn for the worse. <laughs> it's Georgia, what can I say? <laughs> All right, uh, what are we going to say? Um, I have in my notes here, there's one episode every season where the game goes from fun to nasty. And I say Marquesas is probably my favorite of the first four seasons, because it happens real early, and it's episode three with the Hunter vote. Yeah, this whole vote is huge. I mean, here's another episode three. Mark another one off. Number three for, you know, the first time that something like this has happened, where an alpha male, leader of the tribe, someone that's very likable, out with an episode three. I mean, really unprecedented that that someone of a hundredth caliber goes out pre-merge. He's just yeah, this- dumbfounded, too. He's just literally dumbfounded when it happens. Yeah, that's the thing. It's just, it was unfathomable at the time that you could vote out an alpha male, I mean, the leader of your tribe, Hunter, a guy who looks like Hunter, third. And I remember at the time, people just thinking that the, the Mata'amus were the biggest idiots on the faces of the earth. Like, why would you voted out Peter first over, like, Sarah and Patricia? Then you vote out Hunter. Like, why, how, what does it say these guys are going to win any challenges now? They just took out Peter and Hunter, two of their biggest guys? Although I do have to say, we're, I, I kind of skipped something here. Yes, they took out Hunter, but right before Hunter, there is maybe one of the most famous speeches in Survivor history. Well, famous confessionals. You guys know which one I'm talking about? Is this uh, Boston Robs? Boston Rob. This is the Godfather about, speech. Uh, uh, fear keeps people loyal. Yeah, it, it's right before the Hunter vote. It's you know they gone. They went to the immunity challenge or the remote the reward challenge. Row two wins again. That's the one where they build a boat, right? And they got to sail around and get stuff. Right, and the yeah. general Gabriel. gets general gets the raft dropped on his foot. Yeah, but Gabriel again just kicks ass in all the challenges. Like he just completely dominates that one, like he did the one before. And then uh, they come back. You have Hunter saying, "I hate this camp, this tribe. This tribe sucks. They're no good in challenges. These aren't people I want to camp with. They don't care." And then the immunity challenge in this one is the one with the balls in the maze, right? With the little uh, like a, the game where they're trying right. to get the ball uh-huh. through the maze in the oh, hole. And, and this is where we really get to see a lot of uh, Rotu's nicknames too, because they start calling each other Ko and and oh yeah, Pappy, Sweet Pea. We, we see the really emergence of the nicknames in that during that challenge. Yeah, a lot of people wanted to ask. A lot of the readers wrote in questions, and this is one that I got asked a lot. They wanted to talk about Johnny Pots and Pans and Boston Rob and the nicknames. But a lot of people don't seem to remember is that everybody on Rotu had a nickname. It wasn't just Johnny Pots and Pans and the general. What was it? Uh, Tammy was Scoop. Gabriel was Tonga. Is that right? 
And then uh, uh, Zoe so was Xena. Uh, Xena. Yeah. And then you had Johnny Pots and Pans. You had Sweet Pea. You had Pap- K.O. You had Pappy. Pappy, yeah. And I think and then the general. So they all had nicknames. It wasn't just Johnny Pots and Pans and the general. So a lot of people said, oh, is the only reason they called him the general is because there was a Rob on the other tribe? And I'm like, no, the reason they called him the general is because they all had nicknames. My favorite yeah, that, being Xena. Yeah, Xena, of course. I mean, Zoe. It, Zoe's just TV gold no matter what she does. <laughs> Work hard, play hard, baby. <laughs> Deep throat in a Snickers bar. <laughs> Ew, gross. <laughs> How come that didn't get a gross the first time I said it? That's the second time I've done that joke. I know, I just... <laughs> the, the, image, the image came back to me. I, I got some bad news for you, Mario. We only half pay attention to you. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> So anyway, that that in immunity challenge in episode three, that's the one where, you know, they have the maze and the ball. And if I recall, Mata Amu almost wins that one. And they're like they're really close to the end and they choke at the end. And if I recall, isn't it isn't it our challenge god, Boston Rob, who chokes and doesn't get them the last ball in that one? Yeah. Isn't Rob directing? Yeah, exactly. So, again, I like to point out the legacy of Boston Rob is the all time greatest player and challenge beast. He chokes that challenge, too. Faparu and then this one, that's two in a row he loses. He's not so much a challenge beast in Marquesas. Again, Marquesas is a totally different Rob, and, and that's, I think that's what's great about Rob in the sense that, yes, Survivor has allowed him to come back four times, and you know, we, we can think all that that we want, and you know, other people don't get the chance. But you know, his first go-around, he's not you know, super special on challenges or this, that. You know, that's more of all-stars yeah. Boston Rob. But, but this one is you know, just young kid trying to figure it out. I mean, he's clearly smart and athletic, but you know, hey, bad things happen, and they had like Gabe and shit on the other tribe. I mean, yeah. Come on now. Yeah, he gets, Boston Rob, unfortunately, gets kind of the buffoon edit in Marquesas, which is something that a lot of people seem to forget. I know we're going to get a lot of angry emails about me just saying that right then but i will say in his defense that like i said this is the the godfather speech right after uh Mar-Alma loses the challenge again they're getting ready to go to tribal council and rob gives this just wonderful confessional about how you know fear keeps people loyal and you know if i can get people to do what they are i forget the whole speech but it's just it's amazing and and what's funny at the time is that a lot of people don't know this, especially our, our friends in australia unfortunately but that confessional got its own commercial after this episode it was such good TV, the whole Godfather speech, in that it actually got a commercial. That was the whole commercial for the next episode. It said, this week on Survivor. And they played like the Godfather music, and they just showed Boston Rob walking around and doing stuff, and they showed him giving his Godfather speech. But that was the entire commercial. And I'd never seen that on Survivor before, where one player was being billed as being bigger than the show. So Boston Rob was the first, and they knew he was TV gold, just right from that Godfather confessional, which I will admit is just some great TV. That is some great, a great speech he gives. It's great TV and it's good strategy, you know, so it's, it's hand in hand. Well, a good strategy, I mean, in the sense that they're taking out their alpha male and will never win a challenge again. But, yeah, it's it's thinking outside the box strategy. I'll give them that. More more the fear keeping people in line than the let's yeah. vote out Hunter. But, yes. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. The psychology of that is, is classic. It's perfect. He's He knows psychology and the kid is way smarter than he lets on with that Boston accent and his kind of Sylvester Stallone style way of talking. Like you, you write him off as being dumb, but he's not. We need to get out Hunter. No. Yeah, and it's great. All the music before the Hunter vote, if you watch the episode, it's so dark and ominous. Like, you can tell something big is coming. I know the editors are just having a ball with it. So I was just watching it again this last week, and I was, again, amazed at how much time and effort they put into just setting the scene just right for Hunter going out third, which is just unfathomable in Survivor. You don't vote out Hunter third. But in a weird way, to tell you the truth, like, 
the other person that got votes as tribal council again was Sarah. Like, I feel like she's been eliminated four times already. You know, Sarah's still kicking around. <laughs> she adds absolutely nothing to the tribe other than an extra vote for Rob. Yeah, well, she's and, still and she gives really explain really good explanations about you know why she voted that way. Do you remember that's the next episode? They ask her about you know why, and she's like, "Well, it just um, some people yeah. want to do something <laughs> different." <laughs> okay, Sarah, and she just like apparently I have to. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, apparently, apparently I have to. Yeah, and then and she does about this. Well, the reason is because Rob did, but she just does whatever Rob tells her to do. But Sarah's explanation is that she wanted that they just some of some of them just wanted to do something different. Now, we got a lot of questions from readers, like, what was the reaction to the Hunter vote? What was the reaction to the Boston Rob taking over the tribe? And I won't lie to you, almost 100% it was those fucking idiots. <laughs> like, no one thought that Rob was a genius for doing that. There's That just doesn't jive with what you know about Survivor. You don't take out Hunter third. And I will say right now, I don't care what revisionist history has said, the reaction at the time was those morons and Rob is a fucking idiot. It's get the majority alliance, make it to the merge, Pagong the other team, win. We've introduced yeah. a twist. We've introduced, you know, survivors getting more complex. But, you know, you watch Marquesas now and you're like, yeah, get rid of Hunter. Yeah, take over the tribe, flip the script. And everyone has all these things. And, oh, well, look for the hidden immunity idol. And, and you know, there's all these other things. But it's like none of that is here right now. It's basically getting a, get the majority. And Mara was getting their ass kicked and they just voted out their strongest guy. And it's like, what did you just do? Yeah, you've never won a challenge. And some of them, they just got decimated in the challenges. They only had a couple that were even close. And it's like, yeah, that was the reaction. And I, I can't lie to you that, that I can't imagine there was even one person who would have said, that was a good move. That was a really ingenious strategy on Rob's part. No, no one would have said that at the time. Now, in Did Mertz say that? Um, <laughs> trying to think what Mertz... Mertz was in love with Sarah at the time. Really? So I, I, yeah, he was a big Sarah fan at the time. He was not big Boston Rob at the time. He oh. was... He was big on Sarah, and he was a huge Lex fan. So, so this will probably get me blocked on Facebook by Mertz. But yeah, he was not a huge Boston Rob fan at the time yet. Oh, big loss, big loss. Yeah, but yeah, and I love Hunter gets voted out. His reaction is just classic when he looks over at Rob, like, "What the fuck did you just do?" And then Hunter's got those great final words where, "I was camping with a bunch of knuckleheads, and I'll phone the Red Cross; so they can come and save you." Like, that, those are some great final words, and. Like I said, I just remember their reaction to this episode, and I remember being so blessed that I was writing about Survivor at this time, because I was just starting to get a readership, just starting to get readers. Like, this episode, that is one you want to write about. This is so different from anything that had ever been seen on Survivor before. What with, you know, the Godfather speech, taking out your alpha, it was just crazy, and the game just got nasty and mean really early. Well, you know... Someone got peed on. It was just bound to happen. <laughs> exactly. It was it was dirty from the beginning of the episode. <laughs> you know, urine's completely sterile, Paul. That's true. There's there's no comeback for that. So I, I got I it. just yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> but yeah, so again, I like I said, Marquesas has the best string of episodes. Six amazing episodes in a row, and three is the first one. This is the one where it all starts. You got Hunter getting voted off. It just sends the internet world, the Survivor fandom, into a tizzy. Like. What just happened on Survivor? We've never seen anything like that before. And so it just got everyone buzzing. And then the next episode, they got, you can see the promo was, uh, now Gina must fight for her life. And you've got to remember, Gina was becoming the you know, beloved sweetheart of the season. So like, oh my God, Gina's dead next. And it was just, the, the anticipation for the fourth episode of Marquesas was huge. Well, and it's a, it's a pretty good um, 
you know, a pretty good showing for the sh- for the show, so of our cases, the fact that episode four, when we have, you know, only the second time we ever have a, a Survivor shakeup, that that's really not, like, top three moments of the season or top three biggest mom- moments of the season. You know, we have much bigger moments overall um, from start to finish. Um, so it's p- pretty cool that the fact that there's a tribal shuffle doesn't rank in the top three moments of all time. Yeah. But I will have to say with these first three episodes, you know, because we're going to get a tribe shake up here in episode four. But Mara Amu, one of the worst tribes ever. It's got to be the worst. I mean, they're right up there. Oh, they never God. won a challenge. They're, they're I don't think they horrible. ever. Would, I don't think they ever would have won a challenge. Ugh, they're so bad. Well, you look at them on paper with Peter and Hunter. If they'd kept both of them, maybe they would have won one. Who knows? But yeah, they, they've got to be right up there. It's they, pretty pathetic. Yeah, they were. The, they were. Like, that was the first time we had a tribe that just lost and lost and lost and lost. Which obviously we see that repeated several times throughout Survivor history. But oh, here's another one from Marquesas. You know, watching a, a tribe lose week after week after week, it can actually be kind of entertaining. Okay, here's something I gotta mention. Now, if I get a lot of hate mail about this podcast, and I know it's probably gonna happen, it's uh it's because of what I'm about to say right here. <clears throat> a lot of people fault Jeff Probes for kind of driving the narration in current seasons how in recaps he'll kind of steer the editing or the storyline in a direction that he wants it to go even though it might not be what was shown last episode it happens in episode four of marquesas if you go back and watch and i just noticed this the other day he goes on and on in the episode four recap about how boston rob took over the tribe and boston rob got hunter out and boston rob did all this and it's totally building boston rob up into this larger than life character Although if you kind of know the story behind why Hunter was voted out, it wasn't 100% Boston Rob. A lot of it was Sean. A lot of it was Boston Rob. And a lot of it, in fact, I would always say more so than anybody, was Vesepia because she was the one kind of puffing Hunter up behind the scenes and kind of pushing Hunter into taking a leadership role and asserting that he was the leader. And I remember after the season, she kind of came out in interviews and said this, that, well, she knew that there was going to be an alpha war at a certain point, so she just kind of puffed Hunter up so it would come earlier than later. And so it, if you watch episode four and you watch probes going on and on, oh, Boston Rob took over the game, and Boston Rob made the biggest power play in Survivor history, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's, it's the, maybe the first time in Survivor history he's, he's kind of using the narration to push the story in a direction that he wants it to go. Send all hate mail to yes. I have a really old ass email at AOL.com. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. I just wanted to point that out. And I just I have in my notes. So I, was this early Rob favoritism or did the producers just like the whole Rob loyalty godfather angle? And I'm curious. And well, I mean, how how much do they really like Rob at this point? Because Rob doesn't necessarily get a really favorable edit during the season. A lot of time they kind of paint him as this lazy buffoon. But yeah, if you look at the episode four recap, they totally kind of be, a, you know, uh, deify rob as this big hero for what he did how amazing this move was so it's it's kind of interesting to watch now in retrospect they want it to hurt more when sarah goes out oh no (laughs) rob is losing his girl (laughs) it's all the master part of the sarah storyline yes (laughs) well it's a ratings gold and i i'm starting to realize i mean i knew this i knew all these facts on paper whatnot you know, when I watched it then and, and, and on rewatches and, and retrospects and whatnot. But Paul, I think, is hitting the nail on the head. We keep seeing all these new things that we haven't seen before. And I think that, you know, the Rob speech and just Rob in general is something we really hadn't seen before on the show. And so I think they were just trying to milk it because uh, he's not going to the end of the game this time. No, he's not. And he starts to get a lot of attention here for someone that doesn't even make the jury, which is kind of interesting because they didn't really do that back then. No, you're right. I mean, they, they, they painted the people, you know, more post-merge people. But, you know, Rob was such gripping television, and he doesn't make the merge, and so they spent a lot of time on him. 
again, so, okay, we got after the Hunter vote, we're back at Mata Amu, and you got all the, all the fallout, everyone screaming at each other, Gina wondering why the hell you'd vote out Hunter. And you got the thing that Paul, I think, pointed out earlier where Sarah's trying to justify it, but she can't because she's, um, I'll say this nicely, because she's too stupid. Because <laughs> she's She's like, well, we just uh, we thought maybe uh, we'd do some different things. It's, just, it's really uncomfortable to watch. Which is funny because, you know, Sarah's got the ultimate justification. They keep voting for Sarah. So she's yeah. like, well, I'm yeah. not voting Sa- for me. Sarah's the one who doesn't have to explain herself, you know. She's the one throwing yeah. herself in the line of fire. And then I think we cut over to Rotu, and then I have in my notes here, Gabriel goes on and on in this next scene about the unity and love. And this is why Rotu's so special. And I kind of wrote down... A lot of people didn't like Gabriel at the time and kind of got annoyed by that. And I can kind of see why, because if you watch the first four episodes of Marquesas, that's all it is, is people saying, oh, Rotu, love, harmony, blah, 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 I mean, all that stuff. And it is kind of annoying when you watch it, because that's the only storyline they really had at Rotu was that Kathy was annoying and their unity is why they are so special. And But I, I kind of noticed when I, in my notes this time I wrote, the reason they're pointing this out, it's being done for a reason, because they want the Gabriel vote, when it happens, they want you to know that it's going to hurt, that, it, that's, that it's going to hurt the tribe, because he's kind of the key. So when you watch Gabriel going on over and over in every confessional about how much love there is in this tribe, that's that's a setup. It's not really being done to annoy you. It's being done to set up the next episode when it goes. They want that to be a big deal. Oh, did people not like Gabriel as much as you want them to like Gabriel? People didn't like Gabriel. Gabriel was hated just as much as Giuseppe. I hate to say that. I can just see Mario with his fists balled up, just going, you take that back. Well, what sucks is I spent all these years defending Vesepia too. So I kind of have to do half my efforts defending Gabriel and half defending Vesepia. So I can't defend Gabriel as much as you think I have. Vesepia was in there, too. In fact, she was actually a bigger case because you got to stick up for the winner. But Gabe won, right? (laughs) Well, Gabe won my heart. And life. Yes. All right. What else is going on in four? Well, four is uh, four is our shakeup, right? Oh, four is oh, the twist. Yeah. In fact, I just wrote in my notes. I'm looking through episode four. I said, "Row two was the best tribe ever. They never would have lost the challenge without the twist." And it's who knows if that's true, but <laughs> I like to say that's true. Yep. So this is you know they they do the twist instead of pulling people out to the hey this is a place where you can, <laughs> imagine they could do that on water like this is a place where we dropped you in the fucking water do you remember no you don't what no and then they just took them out and you know made them pull buffs from underneath a, a disc or whatever now I have a question here I've heard mixed answers on this over the years did the Marquesas cast know that there'd been a twist in Africa or not well I actually for the longest time I thought that no for sure not. Um, they did not know it was going, you know, that that was going to happen and stuff like that because they wanted to, you know, make it a fresh twist like Africa. But just in this past year, Rob Sessonino had Vesepia on his on his podcast, and she said that yes, like they were like in the airport. I think she said they were in the airport waiting to leave on the plane, and uh, Survivor was on TV, and they had watched the twist that just unfolded. So that was the last episode of Survivor they had seen before they went to the Marquesas, which surprised okay. me. Yeah, although I will say if if they knew that twists were possible, Rob, Boston Rob's strategy to take out Hunter makes more sense because it just ensures there's more people who are going to be loyal to him left in the game. Although I'm not going to give him that credit because I don't I don't think they would have had time to plan for a twist because even if they saw it, it would have been like right before they left for the game. So I don't know. It's again, this is kind of a gray area if they really knew that a twist was coming or not or what it really entailed. And obviously they didn't see the end of Africa, so they never saw how the twist played out. They would have just seen that there was one. So, yeah, it's just kind of one of those questions, like, did they know a twist was possible in Marquesas? 
it probably was a, possible, but they don't know when they're going to do it. And they don't know what, because this time they brought the whole tribe together. They made them stand on discs. They made them pull a buff out. You know, mm-hmm. I think that they were wary, and we see it later when we get to the merge kind of thing. And I know we're not going to talk about it uh, so much on this podcast. But, you know, whenever you get a note saying choose one or two or three people to go somewhere, like, you yeah. you know, that's wary stuff. But this was, you know, the tribes were coming together seemingly for uh, – for a challenge, which is what happened, but like, uh, instead they, they did the twist and it's like, well, you know, it, it was sprung on them and they don't know when they don't know what. And then, you know, they, they, I think they were probably maybe looking for something like Africa. If they had just seen that episode, like, you know, choose three ambassadors to go to this place, but instead they all mm-hmm. went to the challenge and had to pull discs. Yeah. And that disc scene is awesome. I was just watching that the other day and Man, the whole scene is just glares and glances and ominous music. And there's every time someone switches tribes, they'll like show a close up on what relationship they were in and how this is going to affect the game. It's really well done if you go back and watch it. And it's just, again, it's all nonverbal, though. It's funny. They're just turning over discs and all glaring. And it's really funny. Especially Zoe, again, to go back to Zoe. <laughs> I think she's the first one. She's the first one to turn over her disc. And she just gives Jeff Probst the death glare. She, and she, oh, and first, she kind of lifts up her arms, like, well, he, she, he's like, Zoe, you're up first. And she's like, well, what do you want me to do? Like, gives this look. And then she flips <laughs> it over and she realizes what's going to happen. And she just stares him down. And then she deep throats a Snickers bar. <laughs> gross. <laughs> because she works hard and plays hard. <laughs> just getting grosser and grosser. Just stop. Nasty. Yes, anyway. So, yeah, then we have the... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, would you rather she piss on the Snickers bar, Paul? I don't know. Close second. (laughs) Ah, yes, we've gone off the tracks now. (laughs) Good! Um, Yeah, it's funny, then you end up with a twist, and then you got... What is it? They kept the same tribe number, so there's still eight uh, Rotus against five Mata Amus. And I always love this, that basically it's now the best tribe in Survivor history against the worst tribe in Survivor history. And I remember just cracking up when that happens. Like, Madu Amu, as if they haven't had a bad, bad luck, uh, enough bad luck up to this point, now it's, it's uh, what, the four weakest women in the game plus Pascal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they have to beat the Rotus plus Boston Rob and Sean now. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just funny, the, the shot of, after the, after the twist, you see this giant wall of Rotu on one side and this sad little tribe of people who are never going to win anything over on the right, the Madu Amus, and it's... It's just it sets up the next episode so great when Mata Amu actually starts winning and like goes on a winning streak. But it's like I remember at the time just watching that like holy shit, this is going to be this this game's going to be eight to nothing pretty soon. It didn't look good. It didn't look good. I have to tell no. you. No. And then I, I got, there's so many great underrated moments in in Marquesas. And this is one that a lot of people won't remember. In fact, I'm curious if you remember this, Paul. You just saw this the other day. But they go back to New Mata Amu, and it's just like Gina and Aaliyah, Kathy, they're all talking about the last night's vote, the Hunter vote. And so Gina just goes on and on and on about how great Hunter is and how amazing he was. And, and, uh, and, uh, no, what was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Gina, Gina goes on about what idiots they were to vote off Hunter. And so Sarah is standing right next to her, and Sarah goes, Oh, Hunter was the greatest guy. He was so good at challenges. He was our leader. We all loved him. And Gina is standing right next to her, and Gina gives her the biggest shut-the-fuck-up-bitch glare you've ever seen. Yeah, and then she punctuates it with, uh, yeah. nicest guy in the world. And I think Sarah yeah. reiterates that just four of us, for some reason, decided to decided to get rid of yeah, him. for some reason. But if you ever watch Marquesas, watch episode four, that's that episode, that uh, scene where... Sarah is going on and on about what a great guy Hunter was, and Gina looks at her like she's going to kill her. It's just funny. 
maybe maybe she's a doctor Doctor Sean fan. Maybe she's saying that you know there was a reason other than strategy that they voted him out. <laughs> yes. Just something happened. We don't know what happened. Just uh, collectively, we decided at the last minute. So anyway, we get we get uh, we get working, and so then then the 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 lazy Mara Amus, Rob and whatnot, and Sean get over to uh, Rotu, and then you know Rotu's like, "You have to do you know shit tons of work," and they're like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, that's the, basically this is the point of the game where Rob and Sean basically just give up that they just sit on the beach and they ask Tammy to feed them coconut all the all day. And it's funny, there's a little dichotomy there that a lot, most people will remember where Rob and Sean give up. And Vesepia immediately distances herself from Rob and Sean and starts bonding with the Mata, with the Rotus. And at the time, everyone's like, oh, what a kiss up. And it's like, well, this is why she won. Yep. Like, it's, you could not draw a better parallel if you, if you watch the episode. But yeah, so Rob and Sean give up and they, they laugh at how V is bonding with the Rotus. And well, hey, guess what happens? Exactly. But at the same time, V brings up the point again. She's like, my God, they have to work so hard to get their food, whereas we could just pick grapefruit all day. And it's like, why didn't you go to Mara Amu when you merged? <laughs> this is going to stick in Jay's craw for the entire podcast. Well, like, they were just starving at the end of the, at the, end of the show. And they're like, oh, my God, my kingdom for some food. And it's like, yeah. you, had, you could have lived in grapefruit patches. Yeah, but we chose the waterfall. Yeah, well, symbolism is nice. So I think what happens here is we get the famous scene where Boston Rob, who was once embarrassed to say negative things about people, gets a confessional where he slams the entire cast of Rotu. Great confessional. Yeah, we're, awesome, we're, awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah, where the general, they call him the general because he's got a little dick. Let's see, because he laughs at Zoe because she's basically he thinks she's a lesbian, and John's a big time queer. Ta- like, dude, ta- ta- <laughs> even those in there, Tammy's engaged. Not too much hope there. Yeah, like, and then Gabriel. The worst he can say about Gabriel is he thinks he's smarter than he is. But yeah, it's funny that yeah, Boston Rob just slams these people. I remember the thing about John's a big time queer. I'm not going to be sleeping next to him. I'm like, I remember at the time thinking, whoa, what? No, I mean. We saw the rats and the snakes speech on Survivor, but this is different. Like you don't start homophobing bashing on Survivor. That was that was kind of whole thing different altogether. And I remember a lot of people were kind of pissed about that at the time. And I remember I just being laughing, thinking that man Rob shouldn't have said that on TV. He's going to really regret that when he sees this on the episode. Yeah, no, it that that is that is a great confession. No, wasn't the Zoe thing the uh, uh, the strongest dude out here or something yeah, like but that? That's like, what I say. But come on, yeah, he's implying. Uh... Exactly, he's implying that she's a lesbian. He's like, but Zoe, <laughs> like Zoe is tough, and but come on, come on, she's the toughest Without guy a here. Doubt, she's the toughest <laughs> guy out here. That's fantastic. Yeah, maybe the I mean between the Godfather confessional and then this in back to back episodes, this is really where Boston Rob's legacy kind of is born. Oh, he's the one who's going to say make good confessionals. <laughs> Oh, and it's such a no-brainer again. Like he, you know, he he was such a star on this thing. I mean, he was such you know television gold for these little things. They brought him back for All Stars, and you're like, well, yeah, that's the funny dude from Marquesas that just ripped on everyone. Yeah. Well, then there's another one. People remember that first confessional, but there's another one later where Rob says they got eight guys over here. The girls are ugly. Then he goes, well, okay, they got seven guys and one girl, and her name is John. I mean, that was a follow-up. I'm like, dude, Rob, stop. Yeah, it was harsh. Yeah, people forget that one. That was just as bad. <clears throat> so uh, what do I have here? I have basically episode four is just kind of setting up the next couple episodes. It's it as a standalone. It's not as strong as three, five, six, seven, eight, but it well, sets up well, a lot of stuff. That, nothing what, happens uh, in episode five. So 
<laughs> Fuck you. Yes, but I do want to comment here. There's also, I just love the scene where Kathy takes him on a walk and gets him lost, and Sarah can't handle it. And, and then uh, <laughs> they're all, you know, foraging for food, and Sarah's going to head back to camp because uh, uh, the no no bites were so bad. She's going to cut her legs off with the machete. And then she gets like three feet, and she's like, apparently I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and then comes back and sits down. Yeah. I think that's the scene I, I was just watching that the other day where. Kathy's just laughing like the other, the whole scene, like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, I remember that whole scene is just Kathy laugh, Kathy laugh. My kids were kind of in the background. They weren't really watching the episode, and my daughter's like, she laughs weird. I'm like, yeah, welcome to Marquesas. But yeah, basically what you have in episode four is it's setting up the rest of the storyline of the season where Gina just poisons all the ex mata amus. Like when, when she's talking to Pascal and Nalia. And uh, Kathy, she's like, well, Sean's lazy, Rob's lazy, I hate them all. And what she does, she basically poisons that Sean, that Sean and Rob will ever really have a foothold in this game. <clears throat> and you, if you'll notice, if you watch this episode, that Boston Rob just gets killed in this episode. Every confessional is Gina just talking about what an idiot he is, like how they're all lazy, how they all deserve everything that happens to them. So that's when I say that Boston Rob kind of gets a buffoon at it in Marquesas, that's why. Gina just is absolutely merciless to him in this episode. This is the one where she just completely tears him and Sean down. It's a good it's a, it's a good time for Gina this episode because uh, she gets to talk bad about Sean and Rob, and then uh, we get to finally vote out Sarah after a million years. Boo! <laughs> Long live Sarah! <laughs> what I love about that that episode is... You know, Mata Amu loses the challenge again. It's the one where they're weaving, and apparently he can't weave. So oh, as yeah, usual, yeah. Gabriel kicks. Oh, yes, I, this is reminding me. This is a scene that I never really noticed before. I mean, I noticed before, but never laughed at. But I was rewatching this with my girlfriend, and we realized what a goofy scene this was. When they go to get the tree mail, Gina and Kathy they get it, and it says something about it has this like woven tapestry here, and it says like, you know, the the key to success is all in the weaving or something. And Kathy turns to Gina and goes, "Thank God my weaving skills are good. How about yours?" <laughs> I'm like, what? Like, Kathy, like her weaving skills are like up to par. Like, okay. So I, I not uh, even. No matter how many times e- I've seen Marquises, you can always find little gems like that. Not even Coach brags about such insignificant shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank God I went to weaving school in the Andes. Yeah. So the, what I love about that episode is, you know, Madama loses. Gabriel, of course, slaughters Kathy in weaving of all things. <laughs> so Madama loses. And the editors try to set up this drama like it's going to be anybody but Sarah. So, like, hmm, who's it going to be? So you got three Rotus who all love Gina, and you got Sarah. I wonder who's going to be the vote. And the editors try to set it up like, like it could be go either way. I'm like, it's not going to be fucking Gina. <clears throat> yeah, so, so we lose Sarah. So, yeah, unfortunately, like I said, she was a major character for four episodes. A lot of people don't remember that, or if you weren't following the message boards at the time. She was a big, big character, and all the kind of the fanboys that always love the hot female on the cast love Sarah. And so it was a big deal when she left, but yeah, good riddance to her. She was, I was kind of annoyed by her as a character. She didn't really do much once, once the twist happened. Actually, she didn't really do much anyway. If you look at it, I was just going to say when the twist <laughs> happened. Yeah. She was a major character before that. Remember when she built the hut? Yeah. <clears throat> I'll have to say the whole, uh, I saw Sarah on the, the early show interview. I watched it's on the Marquesas DVD and I was watching it the other day. And uh, they were asking her about the Cleopatra scene. Like, why would you stand up on a raft when everyone's paddling you in? And Sarah's like, I wasn't doing that on purpose. I didn't even realize it looked like that until I watched it on TV. She said, the only reason that happened is because I was the longest one. 
So they said someone should stay on the raft and kind of with the stuff so it doesn't fall off. So she stayed on the raft, and plus she was kind of sick, and they didn't want her getting uh, expending energy in the water. So she's like, it wasn't like Cleopatra at all. She's like, she was surprised it even looked like that on TV. So I will say, if you thought for years that Sarah was just coming in and being a badass, she wasn't. That's just Sarah not even realizing what it looks like when yeah, she's standing there. The tribe also with, asked her to take her shirt off and let her boobs hang out and spread out so she'd get a tan on the way in. Well, she was just trying. Sometimes we try things that are different. <laughs> Very true. I mean, I think the the only contribution that that Sarah's exit gets is that no one's going to vote for Sarah after this. <laughs> yes, poor Sarah. You know, I know a couple people on the on the internet on Facebook and stuff that are friends with Sarah in real life, and they said, "Oh, she's a really sweet person. You shouldn't talk crap about her." I'm like, "Yeah, well." So I try to be nice to Sarah. She's apparently really nice in real life. She's like a mom now. She's got little kids, so. I try not to talk too much crap about her, although I, I just love the fact when they show her, <laughs> of course, by saying I'm not going to talk crap, I'm immediately going to talk crap about her. <clears throat> I love the fact that in her intro, isn't she like an account manager at the start of episode uh, one? Sarah Jones, an account manager. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so they show her like doing books for like an accountant or something. Like, I don't want Sarah Jones doing my fucking books. <laughs> so I'm so- We're sorry, Sarah. Blame Australia. Yeah. Exactly. Blame Australia. These Australians, they didn't live through it. They don't understand. All right. So we're through episode four, but we're almost up to two hours here. And I try to keep these podcasts to two hours. Well, you can hold on. You can do like episode five in like a minute and a half. Go. No, we're not going to. This is the Gabriel episode. We got to wait. Oh, on yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Wait, who? <laughs> yeah. Peter Gabriel. He was the uh, lead singer, Genesis. Sledgehammer. <laughs> so anyway. Um, we have some bad news and some good news for you. The bad news is you're only going to get four episodes on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, the good surprise, news is this is, likely, yeah, this is likely going to be a three-parter now. <laughs> yeah, but there's more more good news that I have a ton of reader emails that we're going to answer here at the end here because I always try to end each podcast with reader emails. Is that okay with you guys? Go for it. Uh, I don't have a choice. Exactly. Yeah, fuck you, Jay. <clears throat> All right, let's go down to the reader emails here. Let's see. This is uh, from Mark Kalzer. On Facebook, he said, uh, regarding the tribal council set, does it seem to anybody else to be an afterthought? He goes, I, I realize 9-11 forced them to scramble for a location, and for tribal council, we suddenly went from amazing waterfall to a bunch of huts, to just one generic big hut. And again, we talked about that, Mark. That was uh, just, you know, production was forced at the last minute to throw together a season. They got a local woodworking school to come and build the, the, the tribal council set, and it's kind of amazing. It turned out as well as it did. So yeah. you, you, you're going to take that, and you're going to like it. Exactly. Uh, here we go. The next one, Ryan Weiss. Talk about why people dislike Marquesas so much. Whatever that reason is, because I don't really know. And he's wondering, is it because of the V and the Leah hate? I think, now, I, I, my, I think this is yeah. a bridge we're going to have to cross later when we talk about the whole ending of the season and the general perception of it. Because up, up until now, I don't think we have really have crossed, crossed any reasons why some people... Uh, you know, don't care for Marquesa. So I don't think we can answer that question yet based on the first four episodes. Other other than the fact that you might have mentioned that there was a little bit of survivor fatigue at the time, but... Yeah, I would agree with that too. It's just, it was the fourth season and they, in like a year and a half, they'd just be cranking these things out. And I don't think people were expecting there to be a fourth season this quickly. So yeah, if, if nothing else, there was some fatigue in there. We'll get to more stuff later, why people hated the ending, because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, let's see. Uh, here's a question from Mark Kalzer again. He says, apparently production hated this location. It looked nice on TV, but the insects made life brutal for cast and crew. Yes, I, Jeff Probst even said he would never go back to that location because of the no-nos. 
Yeah, this is something that's pretty well known. I've heard this too. Anytime Jeff talks about Marquesas, he says the same thing, that the location was brutal. They didn't have the amenities they were used to. I think there was some issue where they couldn't get some of the film out of the country. They had rights issues or something, and then the no-nos were brutal. And yeah, Jeff just hates the season, which I think is really unfair because it looks good on TV. Now, I understand that what happens behind the scenes and what happens you know, on TV are different, but from as a season on TV, it was great. But yeah, apparently it just sucked behind the scenes. So yeah, production, Jeff Probes in particular, will waste no time in talking how much they hated Marquesas. God damn it, this is Fiji water. I asked for Voss. <laughs> yes. Let's see. Uh, kind of read through a uh, couple more questions here. This was the from Mark Kalzer again. He wrote, this was the first season to have unbalanced editing. Not all the castaways appeared to get equal airtime. I think Rob, the General, and Zoe were really underdeveloped. How dare you talk about the General that way? It's true. I mean, all the seasons are kind of... I wouldn't say that every season is balanced with characters. Like, I know, I don't think Kim Powers got all that much airtime in Africa compared to some of the other ones. Um, in Australia, clearly, Nick didn't get some of the airtime as some of the other ones. So, I wouldn't say Wait, it was what? the first... <laughs> yeah, sorry. Don't mean to ruin your, uh, your... Smash your little bubble of how you view the universe. But, yeah. But, yeah, I would say that... Uh, the general and Zoe didn't get as much airtime as some of the others, but I wouldn't say it was the first season that happened. Yeah, no, and I actually think what what uh, Marquesa still held on to was the fact that we have characters like Sarah and Hunter and Gino who are huge parts of the season that that get voted off pre-merge. But I mean, I guess we do have example of of two characters who really you know have really no significance, and the editors say, okay, well, no significance. We're not going to shove a, a Zoe into the general down your throat. Which I thank you for that because Zoe shoves something else down her throat. <laughs> oh, gross, Paul! <laughs> I'm so impressed with you right now. That was awesome. <laughs> well done. Well, I, but at the same time, I think that in in some of the earlier seasons, you know, we, we gravitated to the characters. A lot of times, the characters or the characters that were developed on TV were st- stuck around, so we got development with post merge characters. But with the uh, with Marquesas, you know, we got some a, a good little arc with Gina, and she's out pre pre merge, and uh, and and so is Boston Rob, uh, who who's just gold. I think this is you know Spoiler. he's one of the one of the one of the stars. Yeah, whatever. But. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> but you know we, we we're we're fleshing out some of these really good characters uh, that don't last too long, and then some of these other ones like Zoe. You know, I mean, we all can't work hard and play hard. I find her amazing. Well, sure. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> all right, uh, Michael Cermak writes in and says, "Talk about how Vesepia egged Hunter on to brag about his leadership to make it more likely that Rob would vote him out." And then he wrote, this is really interesting, Michael wrote, I would guess Vesepia might have done a similar thing with John, too, on Soliantu. Now, I don't have anything to say to that. I've never heard in interviews where Vesepia kind of egged John on behind the scenes to kind of get him to take a leadership role. But that's an interesting theory, and I've never heard that before. I'm curious. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... But, I mean, even in, when she was out there with Rotu, she really did a good job of staying out of the drama and acting like a, a supporting member of a... Of the tribe, which I think definitely, if you know, if they would have started picking off these members, you know, beyond beyond Rob, she put herself in the fact that she was the third, you know, the third Mataamu to go out of the three of them, and so another smart move for Vesepia. She could, she could have. You you don't know. I, I think that you know, as awesome a strategy as Vesepia and later Sandra and whatnot have, you know, may, maybe she puffed up John and and got him. Uh, attention called to him and got him so power hungry and then he you know led to his you know to what was what happened later but maybe she didn't you know it's tough to say either way 
All right, uh, here's a question. Talk about the reverse flag spoiler and the Nalia. And Nalia. Ooh. Um, yeah, this is something we'll talk about later. I don't want to get too much into this, but there was a persistent rumor all throughout the Marquesa season that Nalia wins. And the reason for that, why that spoiler was was persistent, is because if you watch Marquesas, there's a lot of shots during the season where the flags are shown from behind. They're shown backwards, so the, the, the word is spelled backwards. And if you know Nalia, Nalia's name is Helen spelled backwards. It's the only name. I mean, that's that's one of the unique things about her name is her grandmother's name spelled backwards. So there was a rumor all season that Nalia was the winner. And in fact, there's even more fuel to this as all throughout the season, there's shots that are reversed where you can see they flip the shot. So Nalia's mole is on the left side of her face at some points. It's on the right side of her face. And I don't know why the editors did that. I don't know if they were just messing with you, if that was unintentional, but there are many, many reverse shots all throughout Marquesas, and this was the spoiler going through the season that, oh, Nalia wins. In fact, it was so persistent that I was 100% sure that she was going to win that final vote when we got there, but we'll talk more about this later, but yeah, this is something that was kind of going on behind the scenes in Marquesas, and I was stunned that it wasn't true, to be honest. Yeah, I think that the that people get reversed all the time, though. You know, it's possible. But, but but with someone like Nalia, because, you know, there was, she had a like a mole on one side of her face mm-hmm. that, that you could see, so it if if you're watching the frames and watching the screen, it's very easy to see when Nalia is reversed because there is a facial feature that you have a uh, geographic landmark, I suppose. But with other people, you know, I'm sure they're getting you know flipped around. It's just whatever looks best on the yeah, TV. If, if you, you know, if you want someone to look a certain direction, I know that there's a really predominant example of this in Survivor token sheets at the first you know tribal council. They want to make it look like when uh, when Carolina is getting voted off, they say her name, and that kind of makes it look like she's like just like whips her head like like what but then you notice that in the shot just beforehand her moles on the other side of her face so they flipped it to make it seem like she had whipped her head to look at the vote yeah no i know they do that all the time on tv i know even on the funny 115 i must have done that hundreds of times where i just wanted a character to look a certain way so you just a shot and i'm sure on tv they do it 10 times as much as i ever did you did what <clears throat> sorry uh, <laughs> my whole world is ruined <laughs> All right, let's see. We got a couple more questions. Let's finish off here. We got uh, Chris Donahue writes: Would Boss and Rob have that nickname had Robert the General not been in the season? Now, my answer to that is I don't think he was even called Boston Rob during Marquesas, if I recall. I think he was just either Rob or Mariano. Or Mariano. Well, it was I on think, a it was on a vote. Yeah, I think I wasn't on a to them. I think the episode he was voted off. That's when we kind of really heard people call him Boston Rob and and uh, uh-huh. and uh, and and uh, John calls on that. But yeah, it was. I mean. It was kind of like as he it was exited, kind of like that's how we remembered him was Boston Rob. But it was not this nickname that that we gave to him early on to differentiate himself from the general. Yeah, yeah, definitely on the message boards at the time he was called the Rob Father, if anything. Yeah, Boston mm-hmm. Rob, I think is is very. I mean that that is an all stars thing. You know, yeah. I mean it, it originated in Marquesas. You can see the roots of it. But yeah, you're right. He wasn't called that all the way through. Whereas when he got on the beach there. At uh, at All Stars, it was Boston Rob right from the get go. Yep. All right, here's a good one. Follow up to that is uh, Adam Patterson writes: What was the general opinion on Boston Rob at the time? Was he looked at as a major character who lasted for only a short time and was a popular candidate to come back for a season? Was he rather unpopular, or was he looked at as someone who was great for his time on the show but rather irrelevant in the big picture? Now I have an I have an opinion. I want to hear you guys first. Oh. 
Well, it's it's even hard to look back and remember exactly what because I remember when All Stars came came out like. Boston Rob was not a shoe in for for one of those spots at all. He kind of was like, okay, like, yeah, I guess he was a big character and such. So it, it's hard for me to go back and remember exactly how I feel about Boston Rob, knowing you know the four years of four seasons of history we've had with him. I I liked Rob. I mean, at the time, uh, that Rob Father thing was huge. I mean, it, it was it was so huge, and he had such good TV moments. And you know, obviously, hindsight does kind of uh, color the glasses a little bit, and you know. You know, oh, I recognized his greatness right away, or blah blah blah. And I, and I say that he was almost a no-brainer for All Stars. But I think Paul's right. I think that you know you could have put other people there and left him out because ultimately he you know didn't make the merge. You know, he's not on the there. Well, he's not on the jury. I guess let's say that, and you know whatnot. But you know, Rob was a big character, and I think that he was a very talked-about character. But to say he was smart, or people were like, oh, he's great, and he got cut down, and he you know this that I, that didn't happen. It was just he. Was a great character then he left mm-hmm. you know yep. and then we had the rest of the season yeah that's how i would i would say something very similar that he was a great character and he's a great seven episode character he brought it every time he spoke he brought drama he had great scenes people remembered him but was he rather irrelevant to the season yeah because the season kind of didn't start until after he left i mean that's almost all the important events of the season happen after he's gone and some people will say well he was the one who stirred that up. He led to that drama. I'm like, no, there was a lot of drama. It wasn't just him. I mean, would it have happened if he hadn't been there? Who knows? I mean, you have no idea. But was he really important to Marquesas as a whole? No, he wasn't. But And again, was he a shoe in for All-Stars? Absolutely not. He was. I would have picked Jervis over him for All-Stars, to be honest, at the time, just because Jervis was a bigger star. Boston Rob was remembered rather, I mean, among hardcore Survivor nerds, he was the guy who stirred up drama really early in Marquesas and made some questionable ballsy moves but in the big picture he was not a survivor star i'll I'll, i'm not gonna say one thing or another but i will say yes if if someone's coming back some some non-jury member from one of those early seasons i think he's probably your guy you know let's call it that but are there people that maybe could have made it before him for all stars you know more of a shoe in i think yes as well yeah uh let's see here's a question from carl on survivor sucks Initially, the plan was for Survivor 4 to take place in Jordan with an Arabian theme before 9-11 made production uneasy to go to an Arab state. When did the news emerge about the change in venue become public? And do you think that the decision to return to a BH-themed season led to, the, led to the diminishing of the editorial focus of surviving the elements, something which would not have come about had Survivor Jordan taken place? Now, the first part of that question is, when did the public know that Survivor 4 was supposed to be Survivor Jordan? And if I recall, it wasn't for some time. It wasn't right away. It came about either I, late during Marquesas airing or maybe even after. And I would think it might have been even after because I don't remember hearing about right away that 4 was supposed to be Jordan. It was just kind of a rumor that popped up later down the road. Do you guys remember that? I was too young to remember any of this, so don't ask me. Yeah, I mean, early previews was just Survivor Marquesas. I mean, we didn't get previews for Survivor Jordan ever. Yeah, never. Yeah, and there's been some logos floating around over the years on the internet. I don't know if they're real or if they're fan-made. It's impossible to tell at this point. But yeah, it's there's never really been a lot of information disclosed about Survivor Jordan other than it was supposed to be Survivor 4. Now, the second part of that question was, do you think the return to the beach diminished kind of the survival survival part of the show, which had been building and building along the road? And do you think going back to the beach kind of changed the show? I think I've always thought in the long run that going back to the beach was a good idea, if nothing, if not for nostalgic reasons, but just for the fact that I honestly think they would have killed somebody eventually, just 
the, how harsh they were making the seasons. And that has nothing to do with like an Arab joke at this time. This is, I honestly think Survivor 2 was so harsh, 3 was way more harsh, and I think 4 would have been even more harsh. And I think they may have killed somebody at a certain point. So in the show's best interest, it was probably best that they stopped doing that and just went back to the beach and tried to have a silly season. I don't know if they would have done that anyway, but if they'd gone through with the desert plan in Jordan the fourth season, I think it would have been a bad idea. I think it's important that they that they can get some food on their own as well. You know, I, I, I'm a big fan of Africa, and, you know, we, we talked about Africa. I think we had some good podcast discussions about it. But the fact that, you know, they couldn't go out and hunt or fish or anything. I mean, they had to basically sit in their shelter and, you know, boil water in really shitty water pots was, you know, not, you know, I mean, yeah, they're out there surviving basically by, you know, not dying of thirst in the middle of the of the desert. You know, it's like, why don't they go out there and, you know, try to catch some fish, try to get some food on their own. Maybe that's a good idea. Could hunt down a camel. <laughs> or that. You that would have been a good yeah. scene. Yeah, scooping, scooping, taking out a camel with a knife. He would have been the desert provider. <laughs> yes. Okay, we got one more season, and this is a good teaser. This is a good one. <clears throat> Carl from Survivor Sucks, right in. Gabriel was initially cast in Survivor Borneo, but then was dropped in favor of Greg. How do you think Gabe would have done in Borneo? And this is a great question because not everybody knows this, and this is something that only kind of insiders know about. I, I think I've spread the news before, but like I said, I was kind of friends with Gabriel over the years. I used to talk to him all the time. I got a lot of his side of the story, like what Marquesas was like, why he applied, what his strategy was. But yeah, this is kind of a little known fact that he was originally cast for Survivor Borneo. He was supposed to be one of the Pagans. And kind of at the last minute, Mark Burnett decided, well, this guy, he doesn't, people don't really relate to him. He was, grew up on a commune. He doesn't really do stuff that normal people do. He's like an ice skater. He's a chauffeur. Like, they were worried that America wouldn't be able to relate to Gabriel, and they wanted everyday Americans on the show. So this is hilarious that they cut Gabriel and cast Greg. So Greg, <laughs> yeah, Greg Buis is now the relatable everyman that everyone's supposed to relate to. But <clears throat> that's just a little behind-the-scenes trivia that Gabriel himself told me that yeah, he was supposed to be the first season, and they cut him. Then he was going to be on the second season. They cut him. He was going to be on the. They, they just kind of strung him along for a couple of years until they finally decided, all right, this guy's a freak, but we might as well put him on the show because he wants to be on it. But yeah, so the question is how Gabriel would have done on Borneo. And I think he would have fit in real well with the Pagans who didn't want to make alliances. I think he would have been a perfect cast member. Yeah, I agree. Who would yeah. have been eaten alive at the merge? Yeah, exactly. Rich would have taken him out. Or again, Pagan might have gone into the merge ahead if they'd had Gabriel because he was a challenge beast. So it would have been interesting if he'd been there instead of Greg, who was no slouch himself. But Gabriel was just like kicking ass in every challenge. So. Yeah, I think Gabriel would have been a really fitting person to be on Borneo because I think he fit kind of the theme of the season real well that one tribe doesn't want to make alliances and play the game and one tribe does. So that's what I think would have happened. I think it would have been he would have been real well cast on the first season. And I think we've just about reached two hours, which is where I try to cut these podcasts off. Um, Anything else you guys want to talk about the first four episodes here? Long live Sarah Jones. (laughs) <laughs> that's it that's all you got that's all i got love zoe <laughs> how about you jay well we've talked about piss we've <laughs> talked about oral with the candy bar working hard playing hard racism i i think i think our bases are covered all right um yeah i really got nothing to say at this point other than we're right in the middle of what i consider the strongest string of episodes in survivor three four and then all the way through eight and when we start the next podcast, 
uh, part two of this one. We're just going to jump right in because there's some killer stuff coming on here. And the uh, episode five, the Gabriel one, is one that I have a particularly vested interest in, as Jay has made clear many times. I'm not kidding. You stay tuned. He's He's seriously not kidding. All right. uh, So for the Survivor Historians, this is Mario Lanza. This is Jay Fisher. This is Paul Oslison. And we will see you next time to talk about Marquesas. And just remember, if someone asks you if you have stupid written across your forehead, the answer is no. Goodbye. The biggest thing now is going to be to see how I'm going to be able to bond with these other people. Gabe seems pretty cool. He's definitely a brainiac. Probably thinks he's a lot smarter than he really is. When I first saw John, I thought he was a big-time queer. I really don't know. He seems kind of rough and tough over here, but he does all the cooking. So, I don't know. I won't be sleeping next to him tonight. Not the first night, anyway. The general seems like a nice guy also. He's big and tough. Wants everybody to know that. Probably got a little sausage. Tammy's engaged. There's not too much hope there. And Zoe's pretty nice, but... (laughs) Come on. The daughter of Zoe is definitely the toughest guy in this tribe.